0: Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast, by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.R.
1: Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.R. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.L. Levy URM Audio, and that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it.
2: Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. My guests today are Mike Spritzer and Neil Tiemann, who play guitar in the band Devil Driver. I've actually known Mike a really, really long time, so it'll be very cool to catch up with him. I present you, Mike Spritzer and Neil Tiemann. All right. Well, uh, Mike Spritzer and Neil Tiemann, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast.
3: Hi, man. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Nice to meet you, by the way, Neil. Yeah, likewise. I've heard a lot about you. Mostly good, you know.
2: (laughs) I was about to say, I'm sure. I'm sure you've heard good and bad, and uh, it's all bullshit. Yeah, even good. (laughs) How are you doing, Mike?
0: Good. Can't complain. Happy to be here. It's good to see you again.
2: Likewise, wasn't the last time when you stayed at my house for like two months?
0: I think so. I think that was the last time I saw you. Yeah, when uh, we were doing winter kills.
2: Yeah, I feel like an entire lifetime has gone. On At least for me since then, because that was like before URM or anything. That was a long time ago. Do you feel like an entire lifetime has passed for you?
0: Yeah, a lot of things have changed, especially with the band. You know, we got this lovely gentleman.
2: We got Neil here. We got
0: Neil here now. And uh, yeah, I mean, things are good. I can't complain.
2: How are you enjoying
0: uh, being locked up? I haven't really been locked up much. I mean, that's why I'm, I'm so grateful. There's not really much has changed for me. Um, you know, I'm still working on music and I'm still surfing a lot. And that's pretty much all I do anyway.
2: So. <laughs> I, guess, I guess you can social distance in the ocean. Yeah. And you can social distance in music too.
0: They did close the beaches down here for a little while when the whole thing first started. But, um. It was, it was short-lived, and a lot of it was not being enforced until like 11 a.m., and most surfers are in the water about like 6 or 7 a.m., so when 11 a.m. came around, the lifeguards were like, all right, you guys got to go. Take one more wave, and everyone was pretty cool about it. No one gave the lifeguards any hassle.
2: How long have you been surfing?
0: I think I started when I was about 12 or 13, but the whole time I was in Santa Barbara... For college from like two, let's see, 99 until 2005, I didn't surf at all. I completely quit. I don't know why. I guess I was just too wrapped up in music, uh, friends, college, part-time job, trying to be in a band at the same time. Like I just couldn't squeeze it in really. And, and you got to drive from Santa Barbara to find anything, de- anything decent, at least I would say 40 minutes. Because the, the waves in Santa Barbara, they can get good, but I never saw it.
2: Is surfing the kind of thing where if you sucked at skateboarding, you would suck at surfing too? Completely different. All right, because skateboarding and me don't get along.
0: I did have a friend in high, in high school and middle school that uh, was actually a better surfer than he was a skateboarder. So it, I guess it can go both ways.
2: So I guess you have zero fear of the ocean
0: no uh the scariest moments alive of actually healthy fear the closest I've ever felt like I was gonna die is drowning in the ocean from getting trapped under a wave I had a really really scary experience in um it actually convinced me to quit smoking cigarettes completely is when one of these moments and I was in uh, Newcastle in Australia and I went out in the morning by myself I was staying with a friend but he had to go to work and it wasn't that big when I got out, but then all of a sudden it just turned into like eight to 10 foot and they were unsurfable. It's just big old walls. And I got...
2: When you, mean, when you say eight to 10 foot, you mean eight to 10 foot over the surface of the water, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it may not sound like it's that big, but... It
2: sounds like a lot.
0: I mean, I broke my nose on a three foot wave. So, you know, weird things can happen, but... I got trapped under a wave. I inhaled a bunch of water, and then two or three more waves came underneath after it. And that was the most I got freaked out. Like I remember being underwater, and something similar had happened to one of my friends in I, I think Fiji or Indonesia, where he got trapped under a wave, and he was holding his mouth shut because he was kind of like trapped in like almost like a cave in the coral or something like that, you know. Under a rock, basically. Like he
2: got shoved down there by the wave.
0: Yeah. Just bad luck. This (laughs) story actually might have saved me because I remember him telling me he he gripped his mouth with his hand so his body wouldn't inhale water, which it has a tendency to do when you're about to suffocate and it's hard to control. And so he had his mouth on there. The only thing he thought of was just like, oh man, what are they going to tell my wife? And, um, The last second, he remembered his leash was still connected to his board that was on the surface, and he couldn't figure out which way was up, so he grabbed his leash on his ankle and followed it up to the surface. And for some reason, that story resonated with me when I was kind of going through the same thing. I was clenching my mouth and my nose, trying to—because I was already coughing from inhaling water. And um, I remember— you know, obviously I'm not married. So I was just like, Oh God, what are they going to tell my family? And then I remember that story my friend Chris told me and I grabbed my leash from my ankle and followed it up and then just got out of the water as soon as, as soon as I could. And I did end up going surfing again that day, but it took a lot of, <laughs> convincing. It, it, it took a lot of convincing. And I was, I was scared shitless of the ocean more than ever for like a week. And then that's it. Well, yeah, and the funny part is it's like I think later that week I actually a week,
2: uh, most people have like a near death experience and then like <laughs> never do the thing again ever, not like later that day.
0: I have met people that do that, but and then later that week I, I dove under a wave into a school of jellyfish. It it, just, it was it was not my week.
2: <laughs> yeah. So do you think that uh, being afraid of sharks is kind of just an overblown BS fear? Yeah,
0: if they bite you, it's usually a mistake. Unfortunately, that one mistake can be deadly from one bite, but they're usually not after you. Uh, they don't like the way humans taste, for the most part. It's you, they told you you're mo- you're more likely to die on the <laughs> on the way to the beach.
2: Well, that's what they say about airplanes too. But and I actually do think that airplane fear is a bullshit fear. Cause I used to have it and I got over it and yeah, people say more pilots die on the way to the airport than in airplanes. But uh, the shark thing, is that something that surfers think about or is it just the way pilots think about people who are afraid of flying? Just kind of like, we know you guys are out there, but this is dumb. Don't worry about it.
0: If I was surfing in a couple spots in South Africa, um, but you are prone to have more sharks in here. I'm not worried about it here. There are great whites out there. They're usually juveniles because they breed not too far from here. But I've never seen one. A couple friends have seen them. There have been signings. There was a sign up at Huntington Beach this last weekend saying that they there was a shark sighting, enter at your own risk type of thing. But everybody ignores it. I mean, it just, it is what it is. <laughs> and the, the chances are so slim. It's... Like you still get in your car every day and drive wherever you need to go. And you're more likely to have no, something there. Well, a lot of people <laughs> don't anymore, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, I don't, I don't think about it.
2: It is what it is. Actually, that was one of the reasons I wanted to stop touring was the amount of time in vehicles. I felt like, I felt like clock was ticking. Uh, you're about to say, especially something funny, I bet. But like, clock was ticking, I felt like. There's only a matter of time before something fucked up happens. Something fucked up did happen to us at one point. Yeah. What were you we about to say?
0: Well, I don't worry about it so much anymore that we're in a bus as compared to when we were in an RV because those things are death
2: traps. Oh, God. I still worried about it in a bus. I will say this because we've had this one experience in Switzerland where uh, was going up a mountain and I just the way I found out what was going on was because I got thrown out of the bunk. Like uh, everyone was asleep and I got thrown out and I just hear fuck shit. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Like driver is just screaming. And, uh, and it was like seven in the morning. Nobody else realized what was going on. So I went up there to see what was happening and he was reversing down a two lane road down a mountain backwards. He'd got in like halfway up the mountain this was one of these, like I said, two lane deals in Switzerland. And I guess it just didn't have the power to keep going with the trailer and the double decker and just couldn't do it. So, and he couldn't turn around either. So, and there was traffic coming in both directions. So he was reversing (laughs) down the mountain and screaming. And I guess I got thrown out on one of the sharp turns or something nobody else woke up till we were down at the bottom but uh that made me that made me fear buses Do, do you guys ever think about uh when touring like that you're risking your life for music like does that cross your mind at all
0: not really not really Neil and I are going to be all scared in the bus next time we get out there. I'm going to be going down the hall. Can I, can I sleep in here with
2: you? Well, I don't think you should be. I just, you know, same that I don't think surfers should be afraid of sharks or people should be afraid of flying. I just, but people just get scared of things anyway. So I'm, I was just curious because towards the tail end of my touring run uh, when I was about to start doing studio stuff um I just remember on that last tour, just like feeling anxiety over traveling in a vehicle the whole time and just being like, This isn't worth it for me, but it's totally unreasonable and to- you know it's not like a rational fear I don't think because it's a rare thing
0: I've had some friends getting some pretty gnarly wrecks. we have luckily i've never been i've never even been thrown out of my bunk yet and I have had a couple of scary experiences where we were go- like one in particular where we were going down a mountain in Humboldt County, California on our way to Ozfest in 2004. And we were on a road that we should not have been on. And the brakes were catching on fire because there was, <laughs> we were just going downhill so much. And we all ended up getting off the bus and walking down the mountain, except for our tour manager, Eddie, and our driver. And at one point, the driver had. Hey, Eddie? Eddie Ortel. Yeah. And Eddie, Eddie. Okay. (laughs) Everybody, everyone knows Eddie. I love Eddie. (laughs) I was in the back watching a movie with Jeff and he was like, you know, at one point he was like, I smell smoke. And I was like, eh, you're crazy. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. Yeah, I do smell smoke. And then all of a sudden we hear from the front lounge, like someone screaming, everybody get off the bus. So we all get off the bus. The bus is still rolling just a little bit, not Super fast, just fast enough or, or slow enough so we can get, jump off the bus and find some rocks, throw them underneath the wheels to keep the bus from rolling off a cliff, which was not that far away. And later I found out that when the driver pulled the emergency brake that's supposed to stop the bus on a dime, no matter what, it didn't stop. It slowed it down, but it didn't stop it completely. He literally shit his pants. That's how scared he
2: was. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah, so. I've heard that that's an involuntary reaction when people, I mean, (laughs) we all have read about it and stuff, but from what I understand, because I had a, I had a history teacher in high school who was a Vietnam vet who had like really bad PTSD episodes in front of the class. Uh, He would just like flip out and would start talking about stuff like walking into a village where people had been baking in the sun for like four days. This was like when we were like in eighth grade, ninth grade, just like, suddenly class would stop and he'd be back, back there. Um, and, uh, and he talked, he, or he Yikes. talked one whole class about shitting your pants and was, uh, <laughs> about how it was totally normal. And a real man knows he's a real man who's gone through some real things when he's happy to say that he's crapped his pants. Like,
0: well, I, if I were sitting in the, in the passenger seat next to the driver, you know, that one seat that, you know, you can go and hang out with the driver, the
2: death ejector.
0: Exactly because there's usually no seatbelt but if I were in that seat then I might be able to claim that happened to me but it hasn't happened to me yet.
2: I've never experienced it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say it if I did cuz I'm not a real man but uh <laughs> but I, I haven't experienced it. So how do you guys know each other? I mean look, I don't want to I don't want to go into what you guys have probably answered 8 million times that people could just read anywhere else but just since I've known you forever, Mike, and I know everybody else from the older lineup, uh, Ed, first time meeting you, I'm just curious like how you guys got together. If you can tell me in a way that wouldn't be like just another interview kind of thing, more like for someone who knows you guys from the past but hasn't met you
3: yet. It's kind of hard to reframe it. It's pretty pretty simple, though. I mean, I was friends with Dez before I was friends with anybody in Devil Driver. Um, our, our wives met because we both had Great Danes at the time. It's a good reason. Yeah. And on Instagram, just sharing pictures and stuff. And then uh, the Fafars had me over. And this is probably like two years before I joined. And then we became friends. And then eventually Jeff quit. And then Dez asked me and then... Mike had me audition. Mike, is that different than how you got in the band?
0: How I got in the band was, is I had an extra room in the house I was living in, in Santa Barbara. So when Jeff and Miller would come home from tour, I'd let them stay at my house. And it was only a couple times. It was after they did uh, the Superjoin tour and after they did this tour with Opeth. That was the only two tours they did before I joined.
2: Oh, I saw that tour. <laughs> they they did not have a good time on that.
0: I Birkeland and I talked about that when he got home before I was in the band and I was like, how was the tour? And he was like, well, it was all good until we hit Florida. And then everything started <laughs> to go downhill and we've had a couple of weird experiences in Florida. Just a lot of haters over there.
2: Florida is a weird experience. Yeah. So kind of almost like a similar way just like through knowing each other socially
0: kind of yeah i mean jeff just came home one day and the old guitar player evan didn't want to go to europe for reasons i won't get into but he just came home and was venting to me about the situation because the band had never been to europe they're opening up for inflames um pretty much everybody in the band were massive Inflame fans including me i had already heard about the tour Mm -hmm. in the past from a friend when i was in music school at ucsb like did you hear devil drivers going on Out within flames. And I was like, no shit, that's rad. And so he was just venting to me and I offered to go. And shortly after, the next day, he had talked to Dez and he was like, yeah, have him go get his passport right away. And Jeff and I stayed up all night on Red Bull and Adderall and (laughs) learned like... Man, Red
2: Bull and Adderall uh, and Weed are like the 2005, 2006, (laughs) 2007 creativity cocktail of choice. I
0: I know. And so I learned all those songs in one night. I had to learn one more when we were over there because we did our very first headliner at the Underworld in London after the tour was over.
3: Sorry about that. What a terrible (laughs) venue.
0: (laughs) It was a good experience, man. And, uh, there was a good turnout. Yeah. And I was only supposed to fill in for three weeks on that tour. And it was, luckily it was a short tour and I was in school and I had a job and, you know, I just told all my teachers and told, you know, my job, like, well, you can fire me if you want, but I don't think you will. So I'm going. And if you do, you do. Yeah. I mean, my manager talked the owners out of firing me for that because I came into work and I was like, Hey, I'm here. And they're like, all right, we'll get started on this. Not working today, but I need you to take my passport photo for me because I was working at the, the UPS <laughs> store. So my manager, who was super cool at the time, and I'm still actually in contact with awesome guy named Brian. And he took my picture. He's like, go, dude, go have fun. I'll take care of the owners for you. I'll figure it out.
2: And that was it. Did you have a, a similar sort of have to give something up to do this right away situation, Neil? Or was it more like you had time to time to adjust?
3: Uh, you, you mean Devil Driver or just music in general? Yeah, Devil Driver. No. I at, at the time, I was working at Viper Room running sound that I got asked to be in this. But, I mean, I... So you were already kind of kind of in the game already. Yeah. I mean, I'd already been in... I I'd started touring when in maybe 2004 or so. So it, it, I'd been doing it for over a decade before I got this call. But... Uh, I mean, yeah, I had I had a job, but it, it was like the whole time was like, look, I'm here until I have a band, and then I'm gone. Yep. And 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 there, a lot of venues are like that, though. It's a, a little easier than say, like a corporate situation. You know, they they're half expecting you to jump out tomorrow.
2: I think that any good venue that has employees that are like good at music industry specific tasks, like sound, for instance, probably should expect that. The people working there are using that as a springboard uh, or a yeah. placeholder placeholder or a springboard. Because I know so many sound people who who worked those types of clubs, like the Whiskey or Viper Room or anything like that, or a club in Boise, Idaho, but who kicked fucking ass, who... You know, we would see first time through there and be like, this person rules. Then go through a second time and be like, yeah, this person actually does rule. Third time, you see them on a tour somewhere because some other band hired them yep. to, to run sound. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the way it does, just like the progression of things I always saw.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I think it's, it's understood in those type of places in clubs, venues, uh, that anything music related that, It's, you know, it's, it's here for you today. You got, you got this going on, but then maybe next month you're doing that. And then a lot of places also are just, well, let us know when you're back and we'll see if we can fit you in also, you know.
2: Was your goal to be a professional musician in a bigger band or was it to just work in music? We can make it work however you make it work. And if I get in a bigger band, cool. But if, even if I don't, I'm doing music and audio because that's what I do.
3: Yeah, it's, it, it, it's it's that. I, I Of course, the goal is to always just play guitar in a band and tour a lot. Right? records, do normal cycles. That's my, the goal for the rest of my life. And we'll see how that pans out after all of this, you know. And it'll come but back. Fortunately, still in Devil Driver. Yeah, it will. But yeah, at the time, it was, this is what I know the best anyways. So, you know, I don't want to go back and get in it, go to school, get some training for something else that I don't have a full heart in, you know. I've changed careers,
2: like, three times and they've always been related to, to the last one, but, and that's something I always wanted to do. But I remember sometime around 2013, I really wanted to get out of production Yeah, or 2012, like two years before I started URM, like I knew production wasn't for me. I didn't want to be in a band anymore. And I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? And I went and I talked to my great uncle, uh, who was like the godfather basically in the family. Like he was this very, very successful person who was very, very wise. And I was like, should I quit? Go back to school? Like what, what would you say? And he said that going back to school, or something like that would be the dumbest thing I could ever possibly do because I built up like 20 years of expertise in this world. Like I know this world. Why would I go back to school, start from zero, and then be competing in my mid-30s against kids that are 19 or 20 or people in their mid-30s who had already been in whatever game for like 15, 20 years? Why not take all my expertise from music, all the different things I've done and figure out something to do with that. That's the ultimate advantage. So I actually think that there's a lot to be said for not quitting, but figuring out how to make it work. Because if it is what you know, then got to make it work. Yeah, I agree. Though, I will say, we know people who have totally gotten out and done all right, like Jeff. But I think that he's... uh, I think Jeff is kind of uh, an oddball in that regard. Like you don't normally see people get out completely and go do and like really throw themselves into something and do well with it, at least in my experience. Normally they get depressed and don't do that great. I know there's, Jeff did really, really has like redefined himself very well. And I know like two other people, who have redefined themselves very well. But in general, I don't see that happening. You know what I'm saying? Am I, am I nuts?
3: Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the pivot seems hard. It seems hard to pivot to something else, especially after you've put in the time. The life is just so different.
2: It's your identity too, you know, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you identify, I don't mean this in the cheesy way, but like if you identify yourself as a musician, like I'm an art, artist, like this is what I do. This is, my identity as a human. And then suddenly you're in school and you're studying something. You're no longer in that lifestyle. And that doesn't even count. It's kind of actually, a, I think it's a trip for some people.
3: Yeah. It's bound to be. Yeah.
2: It was for me, uh, even starting URM, but, uh, I mean, Mike, have you ever considered doing anything else? I know you had jobs before this, but once you got into devil driver, was it just like, fuck the real world forever?
0: Pretty much. I remember when I was actually walking around the day we played that that Underworld show with the guys and it hadn't been decided that I was going to be in the band permanently yet. It was basically, it was up to me or one other guy that Berkland was really good friends with. And I remember walking around and being like, guys, I can't go back to my life the way it was before. Like, I just can't. And luckily it didn't. But There was a, 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 I'll refer to it as the dark times with the band and where I highly considered becoming an underwater welder. And because...
2: So you really aren't afraid of the ocean?
0: Not really. I I didn't want to do super deep diving. There's, but I figured, you know, you make good money doing that. You don't work all year round and it would be exciting at the same time. And I did take that into some serious consideration. Like I found a school to go to, you know, I kind of figured out where I'd be working. Um, but I think I it, it was a blessing in disguise that I didn't go that route because I ended up having a seizure a few years later, randomly. I'm not epileptic, but I ended up having a seizure and I don't, I don't think that any company would hire me knowing that I have a history of like that, having a seizure because I think it was was too much risk. Oh, I think it was uh, somewhere between 2011, 2013. I think something like that.
2: I remember you guys telling me about the dark times and what I think is admirable. Uh, or interesting too is why you stuck it out. Like I never, like you guys never told me about why you stuck it out, but uh, the fact that you did, I think that it's almost, it's almost uh, a fantasy to think that a band's not going to go through its own dark times. Like even the biggest bands in the world who have no financial real concerns still end up in dark times of their own, whether through member death or something like that. Like, Every band's going to go through it in some way. So what's interesting to me is why some stick around and why some crumble. Like, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: I think it's like you said before, you know, it was my identity and the idea of leaving that life behind. And, you know, Dez got a second chance in the music industry of going from Cold Chamber to Devil Driver.
2: And it's a pretty unbelievable feat that he pulled off
0: it is it's amazing and yeah it's it's almost unheard of i mean you're already in like the one percent of musicians in the world that can make a decent living off of this and to be able to do it twice is i don't even know what the percentage is it's got to be just a fraction of one percent and he did it because i think and i think that was actually an inspiration for me and i always knew that if i wasn't in devil driver i would you know, dive even more into production. Like, I love producing, and I love being in my studio, and I love mixing and engineering and all that all that stuff. So I think I would have... I still would have been in the music industry, but I definitely would have been missing touring, hanging out with my bros on tour, which has actually become more fun for me than actually playing the shows. I still like playing the shows, but just, like, hanging out with my guys and the crew, like, you know... Waking up with ashes in Austin and just walking to f- a coffee shop in the middle of nowhere on the train tracks, you know, it's just some of my favorite times on tour. These these days, anyway.
2: Interesting you say that.
1: When would you say that the Devil Driver dark times were? Because I actually toured with you guys twice between 2009 and 2011. What were you doing? I was teching on two tours. So the first tour was with uh, Behemoth, Suicide Silence. Oh, yes. And the second one was uh, with um, Machine Head. Oh, no shit. Yeah, I filled in for Babyface when he dislocated his shoulder. Oh,
0: yeah. God, Babyface. Yeah, Chris was (laughs) on base for you, I think, at the time. Yeah, we had a... Like, that definitely was... We've had different sets of dark times. I remember the Pray for Villains era. Like, before we got back on, on tour, things were just... I don't know. It wasn't really so much with me. I mean, it's it's no secret that Dez and John had some serious ups and downs. But, you know, I, I always got along with Dez better than anybody in, in the band from the original lineup, I think. We just, we had more. Yeah,
2: you seem to be the dude who who just, for some reason, your chemistry with him was just fine.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we have a lot in common and we have a lot that we can talk about. And I I do think we see eye-to-eye on a lot more things. But, uh, you know, I started looking around and hearing about what other bands are going through and, you know, seeing it firsthand. then eventually I started to realize our dark times aren't that dark. There's plenty of worse things going on. And then that kind of led into Miller, its public knowledge that he had to leave the band to get himself together because of drugs and alcohol. And, you know, we had... Chris filling in for bass. We had Bubble on bass. We had my guitar tech, Dave, on bass because we had to keep sending him home from Europe. I think we did twice. And that was hard for me because I really loved having Miller in the band. And he was the one guy, when he wrote music, everybody liked it. You know, when I wrote music, Berkland didn't really, didn't like it all the time. When he wrote stuff, I was on the fence about it too, you know? And, but when Miller wrote something, it was like, yeah, we're using this. This is awesome. And I got in the band because of Miller more than anything.
2: And he had a he had a really I didn't know him, I guess, in the when he had around the time where he had to leave. But when I knew him, I guess that wasn't a huge problem yet. And he always had a great vibe about him. Yeah, he's
0: he's a good dude. But, yeah, you know, just everyone has their demons. And he had a definitely being on tour with those type of demons is not the best place for you.
2: Uh, no, definitely not.
0: <laughs> but there's plenty of light and devil driver now. Like just having Neil and Austin and ashes in the band is it's much different vibe for us. And I mean, for the, for the most part, we just don't argue with each other. You know, we all just get along. And I think it's a lot of bands can't say that. Definitely not.
2: Well, I can say one thing that I've noticed now that like, now that like I'm, legit doing business stuff, running companies and have to communicate with people all the time, just like teams and things like that, that I you kind of do in music, but not necessarily. I've noticed that there's a lot of aspects to being on the music side of things where communication just isn't very good in general so i think a lot of musicians aren't taught how to communicate with each other and that leads to a lot of inner band problems where they could easily be solved if people were just communicating better but that's not part of like it's not really part of the musician repertoire and i think that the bands that get past their dark times have figured out a way to coexist. And, uh, communicate with each other. Cause it's not as if, uh, suddenly someone who like, say is rough around the edges, isn't going to be, maybe they've changed some of their habits a little bit, but like, they're still who they are and they're still who they were 10 years ago. Like your character doesn't change. So I think that what changes is that people learn how to fucking communicate, which is, uh, which is everything. I guess I'm just realizing how important it is, and how lacking it is in in the music world.
0: Well, let's face it too. And a lot of those times when we all are starting bands for the first time, we're usually in our you know early to late twenties when everything gets started, yes. and you haven't lived life enough. You haven't learned how to communicate enough. I mean, I suppose some people have, but looking back, it's just you know I look at myself as kind of a dumb idiot when I was in my twenties, you know, and now that I'm almost 40, it's, I think a lot of things
2: have changed. I think it was till I was like 36 that I was a dummy (laughs) or 37. Still a little bit of one.
0: Everyone still is, but in one way, but you got to learn and you got, you got to learn your bandmates too. You got to know what sets them off and and avoid those things. And even if you are in an argument, like, unless you really want to escalate it, it's just like okay, I'm not going to go there with this person and, you know, I'm going to stay calm. And, you know, we can still be in an argument, but there's still light at the end of the tunnel and we're going to figure it out. Now, luckily, with the way things are now, I don't even have to deal with that all that much. Like, if there's... There's just... We have so few problems as far as getting along on tour, or dealing with one another. It's... um, I have learned how to... Well, I think the other pr- reason for that is the reason is like that is from what I've learned in the past, like just what to do and what not to do.
2: Yeah. Neil, when you walked in, it sounds like the band was already in a better place. But did, I guess, did you have to adjust your communication style yeah, at all or did not, it just work out? It kind of just works. Just like good chemistry. Boom. This is good.
3: Yeah. Well, when I, when I stepped in, it was. That's awesome. It was me, you know, it was just Des and Mike left. And then, then Austin was announced a little before I was officially announced in the band, but we had already talked. And so I'd, I'd talked to Austin, but I mean, I was mainly just dealing with Des and Mike. And I, you know, I was, like I said earlier, I was, a, I was friends with Des for years before this. So that was fine. And then, as you can tell through this conversation, Mike's really easy going, worked out really easy. And as you know, oh, yeah, Mike's always been easy going. <laughs> There have
2: been times where I'm amazed that I didn't see Mike kick someone's ass. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and uh, where he had every every right to. And um, Mike, Mike knows how to keep it chill. But the thing, more than anything, I guess, you know, there's that cliche of like, shit like that is what makes you learn. Stuff like that right there for me is like the dark time. Uh, because you take like, something, you know what it's like when you get your first big real tour. Like we had done other tours, but you know what it's like when you get the first like big one with like thousands of people, it's like, Holy shit, this is actually happening. So to combine that with what was going on backstage was kind of, uh, kind of disheartening. And I know some people that that's happened to who have completely just like let that destroy them rather than, uh, figure out how to get through it or make it work for them. So that said, speaking of dark times, you think that the identity thing is the only reason that you stuck it out? Just like this is who you are. So you're going to figure it out no matter what, there is no other option. I'm just going to fix it. And I guess that question's for you too, Brown, because I know that monuments has also had dark times.
0: Oh Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'll let Mike answer first, though. It wasn't just the identity thing. I love playing guitar. I love getting paid to play my guitar. Um, I helped build Double Driver from almost the beginning into what it is now. I mean, you know, it's it's Dez's band, and but you know, I helped build it with him, and it's hard to let something like that go after so long, you know. And it wasn't so much that I was really thinking about leaving. It was more like, what am I going to do if things fall apart? I don't ever thought I was like, okay, you know, I'm quitting. I'm getting out of this business. It's not for me. I never thought that. It was just kind of like, what am I going to do if this falls apart? And it never did. So here I am.
2: Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, you guys survived the the lineup change thing, which is very impressive. I guess the reason I was thinking of monuments is because Monuments, you guys went through maybe the hardest of all the lineup changes, the vocalist change, and came out on top, which just goes to show that uh, I think a lot of bands will stay miserable because they're afraid of losing a key member or something like that. They're afraid that the fans won't accept them, which in some, there's always going to be some fans that don't accept it. But, I mean, both your bands, Devil Driver and Monuments, are proof that you can have lineup changes and can't keep going. It's fine.
0: Sometimes it's, it's a good thing. A lot of the fans, I don't think, ever really see it as a good thing, especially when you've been established for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years or whatever. But, I mean, look what happened to Metallica. You know, I've heard, read story after story, that when Robert joined the band, it just, it 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 brought some light into the band lineup, because I'm sure Robert was just over the moon, excited and honored. I mean, and I think that goes with a lot of bands. You know, I think it, I think I was able to be that guy for a little while because, um, the guy I replaced, a lot of the guys in the band weren't really feeling, I don't think, and Evan didn't like being on tour, you know? And, um, when I came and joined the band, I was already really good friends with John Miller Jeff, like, you know, we were in a band together before in Santa Barbara, and I was just so excited to be in in the band that someone is so excited. It's going to rub off on everyone around you a little bit. So it can really be a good thing. I'm sure that happened when Jared joined Machine Head, you know, originally when Howard joined Killswitch Engage. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of bands would probably agree with me.
2: John, was it that way when you got your new vocalist? Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. Obviously, it's scary when it comes to vocals because, you know, that's what kind of most people connect with. Not everyone's a musician and just wants to listen to guitar or,
2: you know. Plus, you had a singer that a lot of people would consider unreplaceable.
1: Yeah, he was phenomenal.
2: I thought he was unreplaceable too. No offense.
1: No offense taken.
2: Uh, that's I was I was scared for you guys. When have you guys heard the old monuments vocalist? If you haven't, no one's going to be offended. <laughs> I, uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> A- anyways, he was fucking awesome. He could sing like Michael Jackson and scream like Randy Blythe and do like eight part vocal harmonies, and he was just amazing. And Maybe play he,
1: saxophone
2: and play. Yeah, he was. <laughs> I I tracked him at the end of two thousand fourteen. Probably 13. 13. Yeah, whatever. Back then, um, before <laughs> I quit. Uh, hmm. Maybe, quite possibly, the best vocalist I've ever recorded. Wow. Don't let him hear that. But uh, but yeah, so when I heard that they were moving forward, I was like, oh shit, that's going to be tough. But you guys pulled it off. I think
1: it's down to what Mike said earlier. If things don't work out internally then you either be miserable, eventually split up, and then, you know, it was all just for waste. So you kind of have to just make it work, don't you? It's like, if there's a sour apple, you have to sort of try and make it not sour anymore.
0: Well, you know, and I I figured if, if Des can start a whole new band and become successful with it after, and let's face it, when Devil Driver started, new metal was a very, very bad word. Like people. (laughs) Yeah,
2: dude, not just start a new band, but go through basically uh, go through the gauntlet, basically proving himself in the metal scene after doing Cold Chamber.
0: Yeah. And
2: that took years.
0: Yeah. People did not want to like us. I still remember being on OzFest 2004 and just I mean, we still had people there that really, you know, were big fans of Cold Chamber and. You know, wanted to see Dez and see what he was doing with Double Driver. But I mean, we didn't, ha- we didn't have a lot of respect out there yet. And, and we, ha- we really had to power through it. And eventually, I think people started, especially when we came out with our second record, Fear of Our Maker's Hands, it, it, you know, people were like, oh, okay, you know, it's, it's not too bad. You know, it, it's all right. <laughs> but, you know, definitely not, it's definitely
2: not bad. <laughs> Is that the one that came out while we were sharing the bus? Uh, n- Two thousand seven.
0: No, let's see. I think we were probably on the last kind words record cycle then, and which still today is a lot of people's favorite record.
2: You had a record. You had a record come out on that tour, I believe. I think it was last kind words. I think. Okay, I I just remember that that I feel like that was like from what I noticed because you know we were in like the death metal scene kind of. And stuff, from what I noticed, that was the turning point for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. The metal fans, it's almost like they didn't forget that he was in cold chamber, but they forgave it, I guess. (laughs) Like they're (laughs) exactly (laughs) what I don't know what word you you want to use for it, but like they let it go.
0: Yeah. And I don't know what the big deal was is because I find these days People don't look at new metal as a bad word anymore. You know, I think actually it, it, it's starting to be almost embraced again. But back then, it was like if you were in a new metal band or if you were associated with a new metal band, it was just like kryptonite. Like, no, you're out of the club. See you later. But not the case anymore.
2: It's interesting to me how bands, if they, I, I think that if bands, well, first of all, metal is a very even though it's got superficial aspects, the part about trust and credibility can only be earned over the long term. And so I think that this isn't just with bands like you guys where you had to overcome the the new metal thing back when new metal was kryptonite. Like if you look at bands like Black Dahlia, it took a long time for people to consider them an actual metal band. Like they're considered a stupid scene band. Like. <laughs> <laughs> even though wow. they were playing like the most <laughs> legit melodic black i mean melodic death metal since like at the gates and stuff nobody they just were not taken seriously in the legit metal scene for a long time i know that for, with a band like suicide silence too, it took them a long time i mean they were always popular in their own scene but it took a long time for the metal scene at large to accept them and i think that uh I just think that these things take time, especially if you get associated with uh, an uncool scene at the beginning. But I think that it's all you have to do is keep making records and keep kicking ass. And eventually the metal audience, three or four records later, will be like, oh, all right, pretty cool.
0: Even if they don't like your other records, that's the one thing with metalheads. Yeah, they'll, like, they'll let it go. Yeah. I mean, look, look how many passes we've given Metallica. We've given them a lot of passes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's, tr- it's true. It's <laughs> true.
0: And John, you were on the tour with when we did that co-headliner with Behemoth in Europe. Yeah. We played two days at the garage. That was how we started the tour, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, that was it. Yeah, I remember.
2: What's the garage?
0: It's it's a smaller venue in London. It's not it's bigger than the underworld, but it's not it's not the forum. And I remember Miller coming I'm on the there. coming on the bus and just being like, dude, you, you gotta come inside and see this front man from Suicide Silence. And I remember standing by the door and it's just like, you know, Miller and I are like this because the place is absolutely packed. And I'm just watching this this unbelievable front man. You know,
2: I was just real quick for people who are just listening, what Mike did was he made he, he made a body motion to show that he was cramped
3: <laughs> <Yes. laughs>
0: sardines Sardine. yes. but uh yeah i was really really impressed with how he handled the audience and how he was on stage and i remember being so bummed out that they were only on the uk portion of the tour you know oh and really yeah the, to the uk so as soon as we went to the mainland then it changed to uh Arsis and Scar Symmetry, those were the the openers. I mean, that's still sick. It was, but you know how sometimes you just, like, there's some bands out there when you're on tour that you just click with right away, you know? For us, oh it was definitely, like you know, Lamb of God. Uh, remember, like, 36 Crazy Fists, and, you know, we just, it's automatic, like, this is going to be a fun tour. know, like, I could hang out with you guys for three months and not you know, and still think of you just as awesome as I, as I do now, three months from now. And suicide silence is one of those bands. And we've never really got to do a, a long tour with those guys. You know, it's, I think that was actually the only one that we ever got to do with them outside of some festivals here and there.
2: But I yeah. remember man in like 2008, uh, when mayhem fest was just starting, uh, it came through Atlanta. well, Kevin and I were writing the concealers and Suicide Silence was playing. And, you know, I had shitty attitudes towards death core back then. <laughs> and we were like, let's go see what this is all about. Kind of expecting to be like uh, just another shitty death band. Nope. They were fucking pummeling. Mm-hmm. And Mitch was amazing. Yeah. Like, I remember seeing it and it was like, all right, this is the future. Yeah. <laughs> this band has got it going on.
0: Yeah, there they was something else to see for the first time. It's like the first time I saw Whitechapel, you know, and just th- the way that dude sings, man. It was just like I've listened to him on, on record, but as soon as he started singing, we were in somewhere, I think, in Austria or Switzerland when we, they opened up for us. And i was just like, God damn, like Phil can fucking just like his projection is unbelievable.
2: It's ridiculous. John, what were you about to say?
1: I was just going to say about a fond memory I remember from that tour from 2009 and we I believe we were in I want to say it was Wolverhampton and I remember a masked man coming out on stage in the middle of Suicide Silence's set and windmilling the crowd with his cock <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that and it was
0: Nurgle <laughs> oh no shit <laughs> Yeah. Um, theory, I don't know. Like- I don't think I saw that. And I, I don't know if anyone ever told me about that until now.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I ended up because Suicide Silence on that tour were in a splitter band, didn't have any crew. And I was just teching for the opening band, a band called Malefice.
0: Oh yeah.
1: They opened up for us a
0: ton of times.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I I just said and I said to Mark cuz I got on with them really well. They're such cool guys in Suicide Times. So I was like, "Look, guys, you've got no help I'll help you out." And that's actually how I got to tour with them again later on. It was actually the same year that um the same year from 2011 when you guys supported Machine Head and
0: bring me That was, that was a fun tour. Yes. I was, was only like, on it for what 5 days. I think. I, I I knew Machine head was bigger in Europe than they were in the states, but I didn't realize how big
2: and it's crazy, isn't it
0: That was just one of those tours where it's like you know we played um we played Wembley Arena <laughs> that yep. tour and it's just like you, know, you wake up and there's just this whole room full of catering every day <laughs> that that you can go so and sick. just Just breakfast, lunch, dinner, and everything in between. It was just, I felt so spoiled rotten on that tour. It was great. I loved it. I had so much fun on that tour.
1: And it was even easy for me as a tech, because I woke up at 8 o'clock and everything had already been put on stage. So I literally just opened two case lids, changed strings on two guitars, and I was done.
2: (laughs) I I remember in 2006 when I went to London to have Colin Richardson mix The Hinderers, and I met up with the Roadrunner people and, uh, they took me out to dinner and they were kind of like fucking with me a little bit. And they were like, so you want a tour with Machine Head? And I was like, sure. But I didn't know how big they were there. So I was like, is this like, I was like, yeah, of course. In, but like, you're making it sound like you're joking about a Slipknot tour or something. Then I saw them like a month later in London was like, holy shit, this band is huge here. They weren't kidding.
0: Yeah, they're no joke in Europe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was... You know, we've been able to tour with them in the States, too. Quite a few years before we did that tour in Europe with them. So I've seen what happens with them in the States versus what happens with them in Europe. And yeah, it was was pretty mind-blowing.
2: Yeah, I... I didn't, that's why I didn't understand what, uh, and I think they do better now, but like, I think they, they were like in a lull around 2005, six, seven in the U S they were. Yeah. ish. Yeah. They were in a bit of a lull. And so when the roadrunner guy was like throwing that at me, like, I kind of didn't understand where he was getting at with this. It was it's like, oh, this band is fucking massive. That's why.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's why you're joking about it. So Steve Evitts, can we talk about him for a second? Sure.
3: Yeah.
2: Interesting choice. I, I like him a lot. We actually just had him on Nail the Mix in in June with Dillinger Skate Plan. I love his work. I would not have expected him to be someone you guys go with, which I think is really cool that you did go with him. Cause it's uh it's it was kind of at least to me an unexpected choice, so why why Steve? He
0: produced the Outlaws country record that we did, but Neil, do you remember how we got in contact with him? Honestly, I can't remember.
3: The way I remember it is his name was like in a group with a couple other names that Dez was asking. You know, Mike and I it was like, who, which ones of these? are you into? And like, I, I've been a fan, a super fan of Steve's for years. Yeah. He's great. Started with him, the big dirty by every time I die, huge record for me. And he produced that played bass on that. I'm also a big Dillinger fan. He did every Dillinger record. He also, uh, poison the well, another huge one for me. So I knew the name already. And I was like, I, it would make, it would really be like a milestone for me if we, if we use Steve and, hopefully that you know he used that a little bit and his decision making and the next thing i know he was doing the record uh the the outlaw record and then from then we just we all became friends like a workflow it really meshes well and yeah continuing you know yeah i think it might have had to do something with suicide
0: silence as well because mark lives very close to dez and i know they hang out from time to time or at least talk a fair amount and pretty sure Steve has done almost all of, I know he hasn't done them all, but he's done a good majority of suicide silences records. So he's
2: done a lot of the really good ones. Yeah. And And he just did the latest one, I believe.
0: Yeah, he did. And I think that might've had something to do with it too. And the other thing that was really nice is he's right down the street. I mean, his studio is about 35 minutes from my house and that was really nice to have. And, you know, I think it's nice to change up producers from time to time to see what else is out there. You know, we had used Mark a lot, you know, we'd use Jason a lot and I love working with both of them. Absolutely love both of those guys. Um, But, you know, it's just like, you know, let's change things up and see how it goes. And, you know, I, I really enjoy working with Steve. He's taught me a lot. He's used his Jedi mind powers on me to better the records. We've never been the type of band to get into a room and actually do pre-production as a band before we go and do the record.
2: That's what I was going to say. was like, I know that he's got like a much more old school, organic sort of approach to things.
0: He has both. I mean, he's been doing it for so long. I mean, he used to record tape religiously when he first got into this business, when he was living in, you know, I think he was in New Jersey right now. Yep. Yeah.
3: Tracks, trax
0: Right. And he he really is the best of both worlds. Like he really embraces all the new technology, but he has this old school way of thinking from those days which unfortunately I think we're very lucky to be in this transition because I think as time goes on the people that worked in the industry in the recording industry back then, I mean they're a dying breed they're not gonna be around anymore eventually. And yep. I, I'm i very thankful that I've had a chance to work with Steve and have him open up my eyes a lot to the whole world of analog, you know? And ever since I've worked with him, I started using real amps again in my studio, you know? I start doing analog summing and, you know, um, actually have like an outboard compressor. You know, I just bought a Amic cable in a box or I'm sorry, channel in a box Six. and has not gotten here. yet. It's supposed to be here this week, but you know, it's, he really opened my eyes to all of that. And if I hadn't been for Steve, I, you know, I still would be doing things a little differently, which doing things in the box is fine. You know, a lot of people do it and, but most of what I do is in the box, but I'm just trying to add a little bit more analog into the way I do things in the studio.
2: I feel like those producers, the old school producers who have uh, adapted to the new age and have like the wisdom of the old school combined with new school techniques are like truly scary with their abilities. Yeah. Absolutely. Because they they do have the best of both worlds.
0: Yeah. And getting in a room, it was just me, Steve, Austin, and Neil. You know, we spent two weeks and you know, it's a double record. So we had to do this with 20 songs. But actually getting in... There And for the most part, he really worked Austin a lot more than he worked me and Neil in that process to get him ready for recording the final drums. But, you know, I was like, Steve, I don't have time to learn all of Neil's songs and all of Austin's songs. And Austin's songs are fucking hard to learn because he writes like a drummer. They're just weird. (laughs) But... I'll never do a record without doing that ever again. Like I it was it was so helpful. Like anyone that just goes from demoing in their, you know, home studio into immediately doing the record, um, I'm telling you from experience, you're missing something in between that can be very helpful.
1: Are you talking about like stuff like fixing tempos and like the feel
0: factor of it. Is that kind of what We yeah, we changed tempos. That was definitely one thing we did. We ended up doing a lot of songs on a baritone Or, um, you know, (laughs) Neil's never been a fan of playing on anything but six strings, even though he had to go out with Carnifex and play on an eight eight string, which we were all uh, joking about a lot when that happened. (laughs) I would play a seven string, tune down to drop A, and he would play a a baritone in drop A. And uh, we ended up switching a lot of songs from drop C
3: to drop A in that process tempos what else did we do neil that one of the most beneficial parts of it to me was finding little transitions that it would work in the songwriting sense but when you have the band actually in the room it's like oh this this works but it feels a little jarring maybe we smooth this out you know we how about we just hold instead of doing this like crazy lick or maybe we need some more from austin instead of just a dun dun kind of thing it just i think it helped the band feel you know it helped it Instead of feeling like something where I just sat here with my Kemper and wrote it and put some fake drums on it, it felt like a band in a room playing it, which is, to me, always going to be better for this music, that is. Yeah.
0: Another thing we did as actually in the studio, which I know made Neil really happy, I'm not much of a pedal guy. I I love overdrive (laughs) pedals and that's pretty much it. I have a vast collection of overdrive pedals, but I only have a couple delays and... You know, I have a reverb pedal that doesn't even work <laughs> and a, a couple other random. <laughs> stuff. <the> best kind. <laughs> Why I keep it, I don't know, but I still have like the old school boss reaver pedal. I think it kind of works. And I always think like maybe I can use this to get some really weird tone one day, you know, but or not. Steve has has a lot of pedals <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, he would get down on the floor and just get all his pedals and. You know, I started teasing him because he was like, he looked like a kid playing in a sandbox, and <laughs> he would just be plugging in pedals and doing doing all this stuff. Where in the past, I would record all my leads with an Axe Effects most of the time, and we would just take what I recorded in the demo stage and just throw it on the record. Sometimes we would try to replicate it, but it's like you know, you get demo itis, and you're like, no, it has to sound this way. But we we didn't. I don't think we really took maybe a couple things from the record that we did. Very, very few. But Neil loves pedals way more than he's really into it, way more than I am. And so I'm sure he was really happy with that. And another thing that I really let Steve taught me was getting a blender pedal for overdrives, which I would usually just put it right in the chain.
2: Blender, as in it like blends. Three overdrives together at a certain amount, or is it a sp- no giving away the secrets? Oh, dude, just because they just because they hear about it doesn't mean they're gonna know how to use it.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> Everybody send $50 to Steve Evans after you listen. To he's this. doing nail the mix. Uh, he's cool with giving his shit away. Yeah, he to- He totally is. Yeah, because you can't clone his ears, you know.
0: This isn't what we use, but if it's something similar, exactly.
2: Oh, sick. I, I know
0: that pedal. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. And I've, I've just kind of found it's just all mixed blender by radio. Yeah. And all it, we didn't use this one. He's got some custom one that I, I don't even think it has a name on it. But, you know, I've actually kind of found since I got one that I just, you know, it's, it's, it's just mixing dry, wet mix of your overdrive. So, and I actually only mix in about 40% of the overdrive now rather than 100%. And I find it sounds a lot better. And I've just never done things that way before.
2: That's pretty interesting.
0: I've never heard of that either.
2: I haven't either, but it makes sense that you would get a unique tone that you wouldn't have thought of before. Just, or that there seems to be sometimes like a standard way of doing things when it comes to dialing heavy tones with overdrives and amps. That, I mean, it always sounds different, obviously, because every guitar player sounds different, every scenario is different, but I feel like something like this can allow you to get some some tones that just wouldn't have been possible any other way. Technically, just wouldn't be possible any other way. Yeah.
1: Was it with that pedal that it was retaining more of the bottom end thickness? Because obviously when you put a Tube Screamer in front of an amp... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so it's keeping that awesome thickness that you get before the Tube Screamer, but only adding enough in so that it tightens it up and makes it you know, more in your face, I guess.
0: Yeah. And it was so black or white before, you know, it's either you turn it on or you turn it off and you, ha- it's, you had two options, but I've even found some of the overdrive pedals. I don't, I didn't like before that I was actually getting ready to sell. Neil knows which ones they are.
2: <laughs>
0: I've actually plugged them in with the, and mixed them in rather than having them on all the way and gotten some really cool tones out of them you know, and so I'm like, oh, these aren't completely worthless. I can actually, you know, I might be able to use these one day. I'm going to have to get one of those pedals. <laughs> <laughs> They're not expensive, man. And, you know, I'm I'm really happy I got one. I love
2: it. Brown, I could see you getting a lot of mileage out of that thing.
0: Oh, yeah. This, the,
1: it, I'm the same as Mike. I don't really like pedals either. And there's a specific <laughs> reason for yeah. that, and it's because the vocalist always fucking stands on them. So I kind of, <laughs> so I kind of just, made it so that I didn't have to have anything in front of me. But recently, like actually, I picked up two pedals from a company called Jupiter Effects over the last week, and they make fuzz pedals. And I've never really been into fuzz because it's just big and disgusting and not tight. But I played one this weekend, and I had to get it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> what did you do this weekend? Can you fill us in? Because I know you went to Germany and which first of all is weird that you traveled, but uh Yes. Is this like some big guitar event or something?
1: No. So there's a guy called Henning Pauly, he's a YouTuber known by the name of HP forty-two. And as the, the NAM show and every other event has been cancelled, he invited a small number of YouTubers to go to his house. Um, with a bunch of different companies to basically demonstrate gear via video, try stuff out, meet new relationships and all that. So there was Boutique Camps Distribution, who deal with Soldano, Synergy, Friedman. Um, There was Engel, uh, Jupiter Effects, Walrus Audio, who also do pedals, and a bunch of Lewitt microphones and a bunch of others. And basically, yeah, I just got to spend five days just... Checking out cool shit
2: <laughs> and just yeah, so like a private Nam without the Punishers. It would yeah, in in one room.
1: <laughs> yeah, but obviously it was much smaller scale. But even in well, those five, I mean. yeah, and even in those five days, I couldn't play absolutely everything that was there. But it was cool, you know. And it was, you know, everyone wore masks, everyone went by social distancing, and I mean. The Jupiter FX guys just built a new amp that is based off a of Sun Model T, and I'm sure that Neil is probably quite a fan of that, I can guess. Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> it's basically a Sun Model T that's been made well. And it just sounded... It, I literally got kicked in the face by it with a fuzz in front of it, and it's the first time that I've actually been interested in a fuzz pedal. So I'm thinking about getting that radial mix thing and mixing in a fuzz to a guitar sound it- <laughs> 10% or something and seeing what happens, you know?
0: It's funny you say that, because I just got my first fuzz pedal maybe a month ago. Oh, yeah. What did you go for? Here's somewhere. Made by Maxon.
1: And... Okay.
2: Huh.
0: I don't know what I did with it.
2: Well, what's it called? You <laughs> sold remember. it. <laughs> God, it was that, g- that good. <laughs> no, God. God. God, I got this awesome fuzz pedal. What kind? I don't
3: know. <laughs> it's fuzzy.
0: Well, this, yeah. this one's kind of based like off kind of you fuzz, plug in? and this one, I am happy I got this one.
1: Oh, that one's fucking sick. That pedal. This is the uh, the Pussy Melter pedal, yes. which is the uh, it's the satchel signature, isn't it, from KHK? No, it's is it KHKD? You know, Kirk Hammett's one. The guy that makes Kirk Hammett's pedal makes that pedal as well, if I remember rightly.
0: I think they're based out of somewhere in the Czech
1: Republic. I think they're out of Prague. yeah. It's the old Salvation Audio guy. Do you remember Sal? Did you ever play the Randall um,
0: module series? I actually, I had one, or actually, I had two of those amps back in the day. I don't have them anymore though. The guy that used to model the, the
1: uh, modify all the modules was a guy called I can't remember his name, but he works at Salvation Audio, and he built all those pedals. Yeah. Which might
0: explain why you like it,
1: because that pedal fucking rules.
0: It's great for leads. Uh, I don't really like yeah. it on rhythms, but for leads, I think it's great. By the way, one of the there's four or four or five pedals that Maxon makes that are fuzz pedals, and I think they're called. Uh, they have different names like Earth, Wind, Fire, and I think they're called the Element series. I got one. One of the ones I got is from that. Honestly. I'm drawing a blank right now because honestly, I don't know what I did with it. Thought it was right over here with my pedal collection, but I must have moved it somewhere. Either that or someone stole it. Have you had people around lately? Yeah, I've been recording
2: people. How's that going?
0: Good. I just uh I had this guy named Lucas that actually filled in for me at Ozfest, Mexico the last time the band played that and because I had to be at my brother's wedding that day. And I was the best man in, in Austin. So the whole band flew with Hatebreed to Mexico, which actually worked out really nicely because I, we had, they had a day off before and a day off after. So I flew to, the, to Austin. They flew to Mexico. And I had this guy named Lucas uh, fill in for me. And he's got his own band in LA called Void Vader, and they wanted to do guitar tracks here, so you know I did the guitar. And then they're like, "Hey, can we do bass too?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we could do bass." And then he's like, "Hey, can we do vocals too?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure, I do." It. Yeah, so <laughs> I did everything but the drums, and they got someone else mixing it. But um, yeah, I've been doing that. I've got uh, just started mixing a record from a band called Tortured Saint based out of toronto and this is the second record i've done for them and then i have uh, another wednesday 13 record coming up soon i think we're going to start in january
2: i remember when you were starting to mess around with the audio stuff several years ago um why uh why have you pursued it you just enjoy it like why did you even start in the first place
0: I started getting into it when I was actually 18, my first year of college. Uh, okay. Because of Devil Driver, I've never really been been able to get into it full time because, you know, I've had, had to do Devil Driver stuff, which is fine. I mainly got into it because I, d- I knew how expensive studio time was. And I was like, well, maybe I should just learn how to do this myself because the technology is, you know, Pro Tools was still kind of in its baby days back then. And I didn't know that it would take me damn near 20 years of recording to learn to get to the point where I can actually record something that's worthy of getting released to the public. But
2: you had an excuse.
0: Yeah. And so that was my main reason for getting into it in the first place. I wasn't really a person that I I knew. I kind of wanted to intern at a studio. Um, Never got around to doing that. I don't know why. But. The more I got into it, the more I liked it. And I have a friend named Shane, which I'm sure you've heard of. He owns, uh, he makes plugins called under the name Kazrog. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he was the first dude that I met when I moved to Santa Barbara and we're still really good friends to this day. And he was kind of like my mentor. You know, he had a really nice studio at his house. And, you know, I had to go over there and record things from time to time. And, you know, there was... Many, many, many phone calls to him back in the day. Like, okay, this isn't working. How do I fix it? He he kind of jump started me into the whole thing, and then you know, just whenever I'd be working on a record, you know, with Colin Richardson, Jason, Mark, Steve, I'm just I, I probably get soak on that I, shit. In I, I might get on their nerves a little bit sometime because I'm asking so many questions. But I do find that people that are into that they love talking about it as much as I do. You know, it's just um they don't mind sharing and telling me, yeah, you should be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. And you should try this
2: and just absorb it. Neil, you're an audio guy too. Uh, Kind (laughs) of. Well, I'm just, I just think it's interesting because there's four guitar players on this call and all four of us are audio guys too. I just think that um, it's interesting because there was a time period where being a musician just meant being a musician. And I really do think that now, well, now video's been added, but I think that it's almost i don't want to say expected, but it's like pretty common just like as one of the job skills almost that if you're gonna be a professional musician, you have to maybe you don't have to pursue it to the point of do of mixing records for money, but I feel like some basic audio skills now are part of the gig. Would you guys agree or disagree?
3: Yeah, totally. I mean, especially if you're trying to get trying to get someone excited about what you want to do, you can't just give them a tape anymore. Like you have to be able to record <laughs> in, in some decent fashion as well, you know, to be able to get your ideas across to people. I think it's just so many people can can do it that you just kind of have to jump in as well, at least, to, you know, get down a guitar track or something. I
1: remember the crossover point of when it happens and i'm pretty certain that it was when drum kit from hell came out <laughs>
3: yeah that was huge for a lot of people
1: yeah it was just that at that point people could start programming drums that sounded somewhat well i say it sounds like a drummer but it didn't really but it sounded like a drummer and it sort of meant that you could start pushing demos to the people in your band or in your you know team where it actually sounded somewhat similar to how it was going to sound as a finished article.
2: It probably sounded better than going to a local studio that didn't know how to record metal. Yeah, exactly. uh, So that's that's what I think was the driving force behind a lot of that, because I'm sure you guys remember what it was like in those days where you were in a local band, you went to that local studio to do a demo and you spent the weekend or whatever and it was just... God awful, and you would hear your friends' demos who went to similar studios, and they all sounded like fucking shit too. And the ability to do it and it be at least okay, yeah, okay enough to show. It's
0: uh, huge people back then didn't know how to dial in a metal kick drum tone to save their life. And uh, it was it was awful. No, <laughs> it's like you know they're used to dialing in these rock beat. Kick drum tones and all of a sudden this person starts playing like you know 16th, 16th notes at like 190 bpm and it's just it just sounds like a low muffled mess
1: there's a one band where their first two records are exactly that and it's some of my favorite records ever and it's by iron dissonance do you guys remember that band
2: oh yeah of course
1: breathing is irrelevant and solace two of my favorite records and they sound like absolute fucking <laughs> shit
2: But (laughs) they were basically, I would call them the Canadian Dillinger escape plan. Okay. Yep. They came out around 2004, 2005, back when, before the tech explosion, they were kind of, I think they were one of the originators of it, but didn't really get the credit. One, you know, one of those bands where other bands that came later kind of got bigger, but Ion Dissonance were like one of the, I'd say founding fathers of that extremely over-the-top, ridiculous, techie shit. Just like flurry of notes, like what the fuck is going on here? So yeah, I call them Canadian, Canadian tech death Dillinger, basically.
1: And I think that the reason why you couldn't tell what the fuck was going on was because of the recording. I agree.
0: (laughs) You know what? I think sometimes subpar production gives the record, some interesting character in some ways. Like if you look back to some of, of like ministries records, I, I, uh, I wouldn't change a thing about those records. Like mine is a terrible thing to taste and land of the rape and honey. like, I don't think
2: I like Psalm 69 too.
0: Yeah. Especially Psalm 69. Like I remember a, I had a friend one time tell me that he didn't think the the production on downward spiral was good actually (laughs) said it was flat out bad. And I'm thinking like, okay, maybe if you compare it to the Black Album in a way, but Downward Spiral is not going to sound as good as it does to me if it was produced like the Black Album, you know? And same thing goes with all the ministry records that I love. Like, I'm sure a lot of producers could kind of go, oh, why did they use that? That tone sucks, whatever. But it's like, no, it's great. To me, it sounds fucking awesome. You know, and I wouldn't have those records any other way.
1: I think there's a difference between vibey records and bad takes, though.
0: True. <laughs> Very true. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> also, one of the things I think those old records had that has gotten lost, but then I think has started to come back. Like it's something that got lost when the click track era and the grid became the new thing, and so people overused it almost, you know. I feel like people overuse the grid the same way that like, that one guitar player who just gets the whammy pedal overuses it on every single song on their record kind of thing. Don't talk about Kirk like that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying. Um, (laughs) I feel like older records let tempos fluctuate all over the place, and so the tempo fluctuations match the feel of the song a lot more, and so that's part of why they felt so good to us. You listen to Old Pantera or the first Slipknot or whatever, those tempos are fluctuating in a very organic, not proper, but still awesome way. And then once everything got exactly on the grid, that went away. However, now I've noticed producers are, uh, you know, changing tempos from part to part changing tempos during fills like they're kind of simulating that stuff that would have happened on older records i know like on the last doth record we wanted to have that same kind of feel that you would get on like an old slayer record or a joey jordison performance so we but we wanted to be on grid so we programmed the click track to literally to change like we'd analyze like a Dave Lombardo fill where he speeds up at the end where a lot of drummers would be like, was Russian and be like, no, but that's awesome. So we would literally bump the click track right there in the last bar or half bar of the fill or notice like the way Joey Jordison would like suddenly hit a blast beat 20 BPM faster than what came before it and then slow back down. And it obviously wasn't intentional. It was just him feeling drugs all in just the right ways. So we'd program all that stuff in and it made such a difference in feel. And I think that, uh, modern producers who get that are doing that now, but there was a time period where they weren't. And I think that that's a big part of why, especially around two, the 2010s people were saying old records were better is they felt better because they felt the way music's supposed to feel.
3: (laughs) Totally. And And that is, it's all over our, the double record that we're releasing. We did Mm -hmm. that on every song. How
2: so? Um, Tell me more.
3: uh, I'm remembering particularly in transitions like pre-choruses and such, we we're changing tempos and you brought up the fills. We did that not to the exactness of like um, going over Lombardo's stuff, but we would say like, oh, this fill, like the way Austin's playing it is a little slower, but it feels right. So we put that in the in the tempo guide. So,
2: like, like if say it's slowing you down into the next part or something like that,
3: or even not, or we just keep it slow for that little bit and then it just ramps back up, Got it. starting at the chorus, you know, to the back to the normal tempo or whatever the new qu- chorus tempo is. You know, we we did that all over the the other upcoming recordings.
2: Isn't it crazy? When I, I'll say there are some songs that sound just fine at one tempo, sure, but like if you have a song that you know is cool. Like you know the riffs are cool. You know it's good, but something's just not right. And then you do that stuff to it. Like slow down a fill, speed up a fill, like do one BPM up here, two BPM down there, all that stuff. Isn't it crazy how much better it feels after making those adjustments? It's nuts.
3: Yeah, lifting a veil. I used to rewrite riffs
0: because it didn't feel right, where looking back All it probably needed. She just changed the tempo. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, Because a lot of Devil Driver back in the day, for the most part, was all one tempo. And when I'm working with other bands now and they present a song to me and I'm like, okay, what are the tempos of this song? It's like, and then I'll just say, oh, it's 180 all the way through. It actually makes me a little nervous. You know, I'm just kind of like, really? (laughs) Like, you guys didn't think about any kind of tempo changes? Like, it would probably make the song better. But like you said, there are plenty of songs out there that are one tempo and, that that's probably actually where the sh- song should stay. You know, there probably shouldn't be any fluctuation, but
2: well, that's, but that's the key word. That's where it should be. So like, it should be in my opinion, like a deliberate thing. If you have one tempo, it should be because it's the best choice, not because you were too lazy to... Experiment. Yeah, Open up your tempo track. Where it should be.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Uh, I'm not going to open up the tempo track.
1: I'm just going to leave it. But even so, like, say you've got a live drummer versus a programmed beat, there's still going to be an element of fluctuation, even if it's the tiniest little amount, unless obviously he's gridded or she's gridded.
0: Yeah, I mean... We've all edited drums we know what it looks like and yeah it can be hard not to put it on the grid sometimes you now to no, just leave it
1: but sometimes those little fluctuations even at one tempo it's the feel isn't it it's the it's getting that perfectly groovy take and that's kind of what was missing what AI was saying about the 2010s and I, in fact actually just as an example uh, that Neil said earlier he spoke about poison the well mm-hmm. and I remember falling in love with the opposite of December records. Totally. Um, It's like one of the the first like metal records that I really, really loved from that era. And when you actually analyze the song Nerdy, it's all over the place. I'm pretty sure it's not done to a tempo track, but without those, you know, getting that perf, it's the perfect take for that song, in my opinion. It just, it feels so good. Just like, and I tried doing a cover of that and I just could not emulate the slowdown no matter what I did, you know, when it goes into the breakdown. So I think that an element of, the tempo
0: changing is the feel of the drummer. Yeah, I agree. Steve would always say finding the pocket of the song, you know? Yes. Like, it's one of his favorite terms. Like, yeah, it could be in time, but you haven't really found the pocket. You know what I mean? And, you know, once again, another thing that I really learned from Steve is that I consciously think about right now is, is it in the pocket? And it's just something that you start to feel, I think, over time, you know, that you're not really going to feel a whole lot when you're, a musician in your baby days, but more time that goes on, it's like, well, yeah, it's in time, but it's not really kind of going with the flow that it should be to, it it could be a little better.
2: Do pocket is such an interesting term because it's so hard to define. You know it when you feel it and feel it being the key. It's not the same for everybody. Yeah. (laughs) It's subjective in that, different people feel pocket differently, but there tends to be only one right pocket for a riff. That's why oftentimes you'll want other than tightness. It's not just tightness. That's why you'll want to try different guitar players on riffs and stuff, because even if they can all play it, they're all going to have a slightly different rhythmic interpretation. That's just their own, like a slight different pocket. And, uh,
0: well, tonality, too.
2: That, too. Absolutely.
0: Another thing that we've never done before with this band that we did on this record is Neil played everything on one side as far as rhythms, and then I played on the other side.
2: Oh, wow. You guys did that. Yeah. Tell me about that, because I know that that's not... Well, I mean, you just said that's something you never done, but that's kind of not how modern metal is done a lot of the time.
0: No, it's it's not. And Steve noticed, and Neil and I knew this before we even started the record is that when he plays riffs, riffs, he gets a lot more low end out of the guitar, just the way his right hand is. And I get the, I get more high end. And Steve, he, he told me, it's like, if you guys had a very similar way of playing, like Jeff and I had a very similar sounding right hand, you know? And I think it's because we grew up playing together. And when Neil came in the band, it was, I immediately could tell the difference. And Steve really liked being able to use that as a balance. You know, there's one side that has a little bit more low end to it. And there's the other side that has this little spikier high end to it. And I was nervous about doing that at first because well, one, I've never done it before. But it wasn't ever a problem, you know, in the recording process, you know. And one of those things that, you know, as long as Neil and I are playing together and recording together, it's. I think we're probably going to continue to do it that way.
2: That's an interesting one because there's like so many technical reasons for why, I guess, modern metal producers don't do that. Like, you know all the reasons, which is why you've never done it probably. But uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't work. It, it can definitely work in the right scenario, in my opinion. Um, it just it requires two guitar players who know how to play well together and then somehow have a complementary tone. Like I think that that's part of it is a lot of the times when you get two guitar players, it's not just one of them feels like one has more low end, one has less low end, but they both sound cool and both have a pretty good feel. That's pretty compatible. That's actually a, a rare situation. Normally it's one guitar player sounds awesome and the other one doesn't. And, (laughs) uh, (laughs) you know, and so, um, it's just not wise to do that.
0: In some cases.
2: Yeah. Yeah. In most cases.
0: And the other thing that Steve had us do was we both use different guitars with different overdrive pedals into different amps on the same song. So (laughs) if, you were able to solo the tracks out and listen to the way the rhythms sound on the left and listen to them on the right. They're, I mean, they're not drastically different. You know, we're still going through a high gain amp, but they're, every single song has a different amp on each side, a different overdrive pedal and a different guitar with different pickups in it. You know, uh, Neil likes using EMGs. I like using Fishman's, but, and I, I, I still love EMGs, but um, just something about the Fishman's that really resonate well with me. And...
2: Did it make you nervous at all to kind of go about it this way or were you like, fuck it, we're doing this? Yeah, um, at first. So yeah, it made you nervous? It would make me nervous.
0: But as I've gotten older, I've gotten less stubborn, I would think, and open to new ideas. And I was like, well... This is what I was talking about, you know, Steve and his Jedi mind tricks on me. You know, he's like, ah, you know, not convincing you, you to go along <laughs> with this. It's like, you will be OK with this, Mike. Just do it, you know. And <laughs> I'm super happy with, with the okay fine results.
2: I am OK two r- different guitars. Yeah. And you're, <laughs> you're good. Right, you have you're to right. learn
0: all 20 songs. You know, there's no. Actually, there is. There are two songs on the record, one of which. Neil played the rhythms on both, and there's one song that I played the rhythms on both. But the other 18 songs are
2: what happened there?
0: I don't know, just made sense. Yeah, I don't think Neil was particularly interested in playing one of the songs that I wrote. It was, I (laughs) I don't even know what it's called now. I know the working title was Secret State.
3: Oh, yeah. I so I played some overdubs on that beyond the both the rhythms of you. That's right. I couldn't remember which ones because there are so many. I don't remember which one of
0: yours. I didn't play on. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't recall. I can't remember. This is what happens when you do a double record. Everything gets lost, you know? It was
3: blending together to, at the end, for sure. Yeah, and even With Steve.
1: You, you did all this in two weeks? No.
3: <laughs> no. We did pre-pro in two weeks. Yeah, that was just pre-pro. Uh,
0: I was going to say. Neil and I, I mean, <laughs> vocalists and drummers have it the worst on tour, without a doubt. You know, and but I think guitar players have it the worst in the studio because you're doing so many layers of everything. Like you're not going to be like, That's all right, Austin, we did the kick drums for the left side. Now we got to do them for the right. You know, it just doesn't work that way, you know, but
2: now do them again. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now do them. You know, we're going to have two layers on each side. You know, it's just no, you don't do it like drum. Uh, Austin was in and out of the studio. And I think in like, what, six days, I think he did the whole record.
3: Yeah. Super fast.
0: Yeah, super fast. And the bass goes super easily. Vocal vocals can be very difficult as well, but you're only in there for four hours, five hours a day because you just can't scream that long. And unless you're gonna you know, you're probably gonna blow your voice out. But you can pretty much play guitar for 10, 12 hours a day, no problem. So it's I'm not saying it's hard because I love being in the studio, but Neil and I definitely spent the majority of our time in the studio compared to the other
2: guys. Man, I think tracking rhythms, at least the way Doth used to do it is fucking grueling. And since we've worked with some of the same people, I know that, you know, that we've had, we've had similar experiences, but I know on the concealers, we spent 10 days just getting tone, just sitting there all day. Chug, 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 chug with like 13 amps, eight guitars, every single combination of everything. And then another two weeks to track the rhythms. It's just a lot of work. Yeah.
0: You only spent two weeks. I don't think I've ever spent 10 days getting into guitar tone. I have spent five, I think, but never 10. And, you know, I've learned that there's, you get to a point. In, there's
2: some crazy people involved. <laughs> it was me, Emil, and Mark going for it.
0: I got to the point, too, where I finally realized, okay, with a lot of things, with riffs, um, production sometimes is okay. Am I making this any better, or am I just
2: making it different? Now that is a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question.
0: And then the other thing too I've learned is, you know, I'll just record, you know, a few different riffs and reamp it on loop to get tones. Which I find, especially when I'm by myself in my studio, you know, it's there's. I like to be able to just put it on loop and then go and have both hands available to um, dial in stuff rather than just going, you know, using your left hand while you're chugging an open power cord, you know, and just missing with the knobs a little bit. Like if I put it on, you know, get a DI, reamp it, put it on loop, then I'll go through and start doing things. Even if I am recording another guitar player sometimes, you know, I'll just be like, dude, go smoke a cigarette while I'm doing this. Get out of here. You know, I've got the way you sound in a DI already. I also think
1: that when you're playing the instrument, it becomes a little bit more difficult to actually concentrate on the tone. Mm-hmm. Yes. You're, you know, you're playing the guitar. So yeah. sometimes, because also you're feeling the guitar through your body. So you're hearing the tone slightly
0: differently, in my opinion anyway.
2: No, I think you're right. Yeah, I agree too.
0: Totally. And you can move around too. like a lot. One trick that I learned from God, I forget which producer it was, you know, just like, you know, I have a door that kind of leads out into another room in my studio and I'll leave the door open and I'll go walk out there and listen to either a mix or a tone that I got and see how it sounds out there. And, or even just move into different spots in my studio, you know, I'll be in, you know, the prime zone, which, you know, is right in front of my, you know, the center of my desk, or I'll go sit in the couch behind me and it'll sound different in different spots. And when you have it on loop and, you know, it's, you. and I won't just do a chug, you know, I'll play an actual riff and then I'll play some, you know, things a little bit higher on the guitar and then I'll go, you know, not necessarily playing any kind of leads because that's not the tone I'm going for, but I'll play different types of types of rhythms. And, you know, sometimes a chug will sound really cool, but when you start doing some single notes, it's like, yeah, so you got to find, find the middle ground and just find it's a lot easier to do it that way. And just like you said, John, you know, it's like, you're not concentrating on playing the guitar when you're dialing something in, like you can just focus on that.
2: So do you prefer tracking your own guitars or having someone else track you? I
0: always prefer someone else tracking me. And that was like that, that record I was just working on for Void Vader. You know, that was the main reason Lucas wanted to come over and, you know, the pandemic had started and I was like, oh crap, how are we going to do this? And, um, I was, you know, I gave him the option. I'm like, well, if you, you know, if you can record a DI, I could just reamp it for you over here. And he was like, nah, I hate that dynamic. I don't want to record that way and i don't mind recording guitars myself you know i did i recorded all the guitars and bass at my studio for the ala country record and i tracked myself on that and i tracked neil but i'd much rather not engineer at the same time i don't like it because you're not concentrating on playing
1: <laughs> yeah it's like splitting the yeah like uh i really feel
2: the same way <laughs> and you track yourself john I hate Pretty it. Pretty damn well. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it too.
1: Like, so for the the two records that I engineered myself, I spent three and a half, four weeks. And I prefer to play whole riffs at a time, regardless of how many repeats, because I find that it has that wavering in and out kind of pocket thing that we spoke about earlier. So... When it came to the last record and everything was comped, it made me feel sad about getting someone else to track me, but the entire process just gave me the element to actually focus on playing rather than concentrating on space bar, star, delete. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely prefer someone else tracking me as well, um, even though I think that I th- would rather approach it as a, whole riff take rather than, I guess Steve probably did that with you guys, right? Was it like he was looking for longer sections rather than comped sections or was it kind of a mixture of both?
3: I think it was a mixture, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it was, yeah, it was depending on the part, but I think for the most, especially uh, for the rhythms, in most cases it was, yeah, as long as you can go and it's still good, then of course we're going to keep that. Sick. He's, he's total about feel kind of thing, so if it, if it felt right, We're keeping it, you know?
2: That makes sense. I guess since this was your first time doing that kind of recording, was there any second guessing on your end? Like, this should be tighter. I'm used to this being way tighter. And him being like, no, it feels great. You're listening to me.
0: I'm sure there was. But through that whole process, it really seemed like all of us were on the same page with almost everything, you know? That's good. And if there there was literally... Not one single argument. I mean, there was a couple times where like Steve and Austin, would get a little frustrated with Steve because Austin is the type of drummer where it's like he'll do something awesome. And Steve would be like, do that again. He'd be like, do what? I don't even remember what I did, you know? And so and then there's Neil and I on opposite sides of the room just laughing our asses off. Yeah. You know, (laughs) over this whole thing because it was funny. You know, there was no arguments. There was, it just, we just got along really well. It was fun. We all became super close friends with Steve. I mean, we, you know, we've pro- Neil and I probably FaceTime with Steve. Like he loves FaceTiming by the way. So it's, you yeah,
3: know. He sure does. Yeah. yeah He's a d- super FaceTimer.
0: He does. So mm. it's like, you know, I, I, I don't think more than like a couple of weeks has gone by that I don't, you know, at least touch base. I'm actually FaceTiming with him after this. <laughs> there you, I FaceTimed last
3: night. <laughs> see, there you go.
0: I fa- Last time I FaceTimed with him was last week sometime. But, you know, it's if someone didn't think something was good, whoever was re- doing, you know, recording the part at the time, there was no argument. You know, it's like, let's just do it again until everyone's happy.
3: Yeah,
2: fuck it. So question, you've worked with so many top tier producers at this point. And, you know, there's a segment of our listeners who want to be producers. I'm just curious from your guys' perspective, what does it take for a producer to earn your trust that you will listen to them and you will let them take things in a direction you hadn't thought of before, where basically you're down to let them on the team?
3: Mm, that's a great question. I would say with that, I mean, the easiest and I, I realize this is hard for up and coming people to hear maybe, but the easiest thing is to have a body of work that I, I can already listen to and be like, this is cool. This is cool. This is cool. If you don't have that and it's just here, we're starting and you're in charge. Um, man, I think it's more the ability to to listen, to be heard by me. So like for you to listen to me. And what I what I want to do, what I want to play, not necessarily me talking out parts, but this is what I sound like. And then to be able to fairly quickly be like, all right, I know how I know how I can use this to the advantage of the whole record. And here is how, and this is how we implement it. It's being able to like to find the best out of me without me sitting there trying to show you everything I can do. And as soon as I I see that in in a in a leader, in a in a producer, it makes me be like, oh, okay, well, the next time he says something, I'm not just going to practice the solo for the next song. I'm going to listen to what he's saying. I think that the body of work is
1: very important because that gives you a gauge onto whether or not you can trust this person. But say that you were in a new band and you were and obviously you wanted to go to a producer and you didn't hear their work, what would it take for you to trust them? Would it be stuff that he's doing with you and you see that he's making improvements or she's making improvements
3: or what would it get for you to trust them with your guitar recording? You you hit it pretty much on the head right there. It's taking whatever I'm doing and being able to add it in a productive way and not have me just work all day. Like, is this good? Is this good? This is what I think. That's it. Nothing like that. I, I want it to be, I'm playing this part. Here's the song. Here's how I think it should go. This is what I add to the band. And then, being able to, you know, fairly succinctly add that to the whole mix and and make it better through that is what I look for to get to trusting.
1: Okay. And what about you, Mike? Like, what does it take for you to trust in a, in a producer to handle your guitars? Is it the body of work or is it just something that you see that happens within the first couple of days of being with someone?
0: Well, I can go down the line. As far as, you know, all the producers I've worked with with Devil Driver... Colin Richardson produced "Heartwork" by Carcass, so you know, along with many other awesome records at that point. So I, that was, it was immediately like, oh, he did "Heartwork," done, sealed. Like I totally cool <laughs> with recording with this guy. Uh, Jason Sukoff was Barrier Dead's "Beauty and the Breakdown." You know, we all heard that record, and as soon as we heard that record, it was like, yes, we're using Jason for this record. And then, you know, Mark was his engineer at the time, Mark Lewis, and we had already worked with Mark and he actually worked with us the majority on gu- of guitars on The Last Kind Words. And uh, so when we eventually just started using him as a producer, the relationship was already there and I knew I could trust him. And then when it came down to Steve Evitt's, Neil was actually my confidence builder for Steve because Neil is a lot more familiar with all the records that Steve has done and some of his all-time favorite records. And yeah. I tr- I trust Neil, so therefore I'm going to trust his opinion on Steve and just go along with it. And it wasn't even th- something I really thought about, like, eh, I don't know if i want to track with this guy. It was just Neil telling me how much he's loved a lot of his records. And I was like, cool, yeah, let's use them. So it was also word of mouth, really, wasn't it? Yeah, which, you know, the way, like I said in the past, even wanting to get into producing and mixing and all that stuff, I was never the guy that really focused on production and producers as much as uh, a lot of other people that have gone that direction do. I mean, I do now, but back then, not so much. You know, it was... I was just, I, I was probably just so excited just to get into a studio in the very beginning <laughs> anyway. I didn't almost didn't care about yep. who it was with. Like, it's gonna be awesome no matter what. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So, the first person you went into the studio with was Colin Richardson.
0: Yeah. That's pretty crazy. That's like
1: <laughs> all the way up there, isn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing, I have not talked to him or seen him in person since. Really at all? Not at all. No, I've never bumped into him. And he's not really the type of guy to go out to shows. You know, like, uh, you know, Mark is always, which is actually a really important thing, I think, if you are going to be a producer, to go out to shows, see the band, hang out with them, vibe out with them. If you guys all drink, that's definitely a plus because you guys are going to become much closer a lot faster.
1: Yeah, definitely for sure.
0: You know, Andy Sneep was one of them that would always, He he's actually quit drinking, but, you know, he would come out to our shows and hang out and he never produced a record, but he's mixed a lot of our records And I always enjoy hanging out with him. But, you know, I don't think Colin was ever that guy. And it it was an awesome experience recording with Colin. You know, it it was really cool. And I think he did a great job. But, you know, we just ended up changing producers after that record. And, you know, for the most part, just stuck with Mark through most of our career. And you're still friends with everyone else
1: apart from Colin then? Do you still talk to everyone?
0: Yeah. I still talk to Jason quite a bit. I just talked to him last week. You know, I talked to Steve a lot. I talked to Mark last week as well. You know, we, we had a chance and we were on the phone for about an hour catching up. You know, just to be clear, it's not that I would not consider calling a friend or anything like that. Just for, <laughs> you know, there is, I Mortal never had a, enemy. no, I never had a bad experience with the guy in the studio. You know, he and I got along really well, but uh, yeah, for just some reason, you know, he lives on the other side of the world. So it's, Oh, yeah. Well, he's based out of England, right? hmm
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he's probably just introverted. That's probably what it is, right? Yeah.
3: Doesn't want to call you on FaceTime the whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some people are like that and some people aren't, but... Uh, Not one of those American producer FaceTimers.
0: Yeah, you know?
1: exactly. Ah, yes. It must be just you Americans. Well, it must <laughs> be what it is. <laughs> So let's talk about the, uh, you know, the lockdown and like, what have you guys like been doing during this time period? Obviously I know that Mike, you've been recording bands, going surfing, but Neil, we didn't actually speak about what you've been doing.
3: Mm, That's that's because there's not a lot there. I've just been riding a lot and drinking and reading. I haven't been leaving much, just me and the wife at home, you know? Yeah. There seems to have been two different kinds of people
1: There's been the people that have like really knuckled down and gotten on with as much shit as they can, um, especially because they can't tour anymore. It's like the longest period of time that they've not had to go away or do anything. So they've got this outburst of energy that they want to get everything done. And then there's people that have used the time to relax. And it seems that it's kind of a mixture of both for you, Neil. Like you wanted to relax with your family.
3: Yeah, a bit. I mean, un- initially I I was feeling really creative in, in like late March, early April, I mean, probably all through April. And I I was recording practically every day, just getting whatever I can down, you know? And then it kind of slowed. And I, I think that's kind of the weirdest transition for me in all of this is that usually by now I would have had a break from trying to write or do something with a tour. You know, I would be on tour, but since I'm not, I have to get okay with just well. Then it's okay just to not write for a couple of days. You know, like I don't have to be writing a song every day to to feel validated or something as a <laughs> as a musician. I I can just take the day off. I can take two days off. Hell, I mean I I can just wait. I guess. But that's the yeah. That that's kind of the biggest weirdest thing for me is just the being able to be okay with taking a little break.
1: And how does that feel?
3: It feels weird and bad at first, <laughs> but <laughs> to be honest, yeah, you know it's. As a musician, I've always, my whole life, I've always tried to work hard for the next step, the next thing, whether it be a tour, a record, otherwise, and uh, just to to not do it, it felt a little weird at first. Now I'm pretty, I'm pretty fine with it. I'm pretty okay. I mean, even before the the lockdown, I didn't go out a lot. I'm I'm, I'm a homebody. Yep. So not a lot really changed uh, from my day to day, really, chores or or the like. But. um yeah, I mean it's it's it, I'm I'm definitely okay with it now. I'm okay with spending the time here, watching some TV, hanging out with my wife. It's cool. It, it's it's actually good in a way because obviously when you're on tour and you're on a time
1: limit from your label and your managers like pressing you to get a, a record together, it feels like you never really have that relaxation time right. to actually spend some time with family without feeling guilty. Yeah, it's positive that you've managed to sort of overcome not feeling guilty about, you know, doing something that you enjoy or doing stuff with family and friends. And I just, yeah, I think coronavirus has been good that you can get on with loads of work and have the relaxation time, which is something that I don't think we'll ever have ever again. (laughs) Probably not as soon as it kicks back up. Probably not. Exactly. Yeah. So what's the rest of this year looking like for you guys, both of you? Like, obviously we can't go on tour and your records. When is it coming out? Is it, is it out
3: yet? No, uh, we just moved up the date to October 2nd.
1: October 2nd, yes.
3: Yes. We, and I don't, I don't know if, uh, if we're supposed to say or not, but we have a single or two coming out before then. We've already got three singles out from it. And yeah, just, I mean, for me, mainly just the record, man. That and, and I'll continue to write, you know. Exactly. Awesome. And um, have you guys
1: booked any show dates? for later in the year or beginning of next? Because
3: obviously it's still in the air, but have you planned anything? As far as I know, every, everything's pretty dropped off until uh, like a year from now. I mm-hmm. think we have something booked in September of 21. Okay. I mean, it's it's kind of one of those things where we're all just the bull at the gate. You just open the gate and we'll all go. and You included, surely. You know, all of us band guys are just waiting. You give us the go-ahead that it's safe and people will come, then we're out there. Um, but... The management's taking a really, really, you know, kind of wide approach at at like, we don't want to book something and then just keep rescheduling it, you know, because that's no fun for anybody involved.
1: I'd say that's quite smart because I've seen bands like rebooking shows for the end of this
3: year. And I'm just like, there's no way that that's going to happen. I've seen a few bands that have rebooked thrice now. There's three times that they've just rebooked it. It's like, oh my God, it just... That feels like such a, I don't know, bad, bad feeling for the fans and for you. Because, you know, you, as a musician, you want to get out there. I want to get out there as much as anybody. and But just to have it be like, okay, we're going, nope. Okay, we're going, nope. Three times. That's terrible. So we spoke about you filling in for Carnifex
1: at the beginning of the this year. Was that the tour with Thy Art is Murder? Yes. Oh, right. Yeah, I definitely think I met you backstage then in, in Denmark.
3: Okay. <laughs> hold on, you don't, you don't remember.
1: He doesn't remember.
3: <laughs> oh wait, hold on, hold on. Uh, that was the stage that was. We had the backstage that was super thin right behind. Exactly. And is, is your is your hair really big when it's not behind your head? Don't tell anyone.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, yes, I remember you. Yeah, I remember. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. But um, so you got back quite late then, just before coronavirus.
3: Yeah. Little did we know it was already kicking off in Italy, and we'd just been there. But yeah, we I got back late. February and then by by mid March we are shut down. Crazy. Yeah. So uh, I've got a question here from Jeff Vickery for you
1: guys. Clouds over California is basically the king of bloodstock circle pit involuntary headbang shit. What's your secret to writing a riff
0: that makes it impossible to sit still? A lot of people have asked me that question like how did you write this riff? How did you write that riff? I don't know. When I'm writing, I sit down with my guitar and I just start playing until there's just a feeling inside of you as cheesy as that may sound where it's like, "Ooh, I really like that." Or, "Yeah, I can turn like if I just tweak that a little bit, it's it's it will uh, it'll come out right." And I'm a big believer that whatever you write, you can only write at that exact moment in time. And I get really, really aggravated when my dad would have a bad habit sometimes back in the day of calling me up, you know, and and he owns his own business and he'd be like, I need you. I need you here today and be like, no, (laughs) I'm in the middle of something, but it'd be hard to say, you know, no to my dad. And, you know, I would drop everything and then I would try to pick up the next day where I left off and it, it just doesn't work. You know, it's like yep. w- once you find that flow and if I tried to write the same type of riff the next day, it, I just don't think it would be the same. I really you're you're creating something out of nothing, you know, and it's, you know, you have a blank canvas. So you don't even have a canvas. You have nothing. You got to create the canvas. You got to create the paint. You got to create everything with sound. And if I get into a rut and I can't write something or I'm not coming up with anything that I like, you know, I get up and I walk away, even if it's for five minutes, you know, I'll go do something else and then I'll come back and I'll sit back down again, which, or, you know, I'll break out my ax effects and just start messing around with different effects. And sometimes I'll write a lead first that I really like and won't have a rhythm behind it and come up with a rhythm later. You know, that's what I did with like that song. Um, Resurrection Boulevard on Pray for Villains. Like, there's pretty much just sweeps going through all the verses over and over and over again. And I wrote, that was the first thing I wrote for that song. Everything came second. So I was like, yeah, I think that'd be kind of cool for me to just do these sweeps through the whole, you know, a majority of the song. But, you know, it can't just be that. There's got to be something underneath it to complement it. So to answer the guy's question, I don't know. It just. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, ha- I have no idea why it works that way, but I'll stop when it's something that I think that I would enjoy listening to, I guess. And it's something that I do enjoy listening to. And once I record it and, you know, I'll really enjoy listening to my car wherever I'm going, because that's basically where I figure out whether I really like something or not is listening to it over and over again in my car when I'm driving. And, you know, a lot of changes to, her, to my songs are, Made based off of doing that. Okay, I'd say that's a good answer. I
1: wouldn't be able to answer that any differently either. But it actually extends onto the next question as well, which is from Baz Peters Nahajhoff, which I've definitely pronounced very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but you actually, um, you actually sort of touched on this with the last question, which is basically, what's the songwriting process like? Do you usually start with the riff or a melody and build around that? So maybe you can explain a little bit more about the fact that sometimes you start a song with sweeps. Um, I guess you do both ways, right? I guess you've already explained it. Yeah. Do you do the
3: same thing, Neil? Yeah. Uh, primarily, it's 70% riff riff starting, riff writing. And then, you know, another 30 of like, oh, I have this lead line that would sound really cool. Let's figure out what, what could go underneath it. Um, and more so in Devil Driver than with any other group I've, I've written for, it also has a, a more of a, a rhythmic feel originally. Like some, I find myself going through my my voice notes on my iPhone, and I'm like, some of them will just be me doing a vo- a, a rhythmic pattern vocally. And I'll be like, but it's it's harkening back to some riff that I was thinking of at the time. I'm like, oh shit, okay, yeah, I just this was just from a complete rhythmic stance can now turn into um, like a, a riff. Do you do that in fact
1: just to extend on what you just said then do you find that you do that a lot that you're sort of singing into your iPhone and trying to get rhythms down that pop up at times when maybe you don't have a guitar or anything
3: Yeah yeah I mean that's my that's I would rather <laughs> not because it sounds dumb later but I mean if it's a, the only thing I've got is my voice and I want Mike said something earlier that that resonated it's that you if you're in the right headspace it's the right time that's the only time you can do it and if If I have nothing else but my voice to kind of convey what I'm I'm thinking at the time, then of course I'll not hesitate to use that. I'd rather have a guitar with me all the time, but it's just not the case, you know?
1: It's not possible all the time. In fact, it's funny because Joshua Travis, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Josh, but he said the exact same thing to me when he was writing the music for Tony Danza and also for Amur that if he can't if he doesn't finish a song within a two-hour period then he generally just never finishes it oh wow and I don't know I mean two hours is a bit extreme
3: (laughs) yeah that's way extreme but but yeah the same he's saying the same thing we are in general that it yeah if if you have if the vibe is right if the mood is right then you have to go with that and it doesn't unfortunately it doesn't go with a time frame you can't do it nine to five and expect to have optimum results you just have to go whenever you feel it all right one last question i have a question here from
1: jordan griffith where has inspiration for a lot of the newer material come from songs off the newest album have a, a much different vibe compared to their
0: earlier stuff so what's driving your guitar playing and writing i think each other me neil and austin you know you know we kind of got thrown into a room together for trust no one and we didn't know each other before we started playing in a band. You know, luckily, we all get along really well, and that is just an amazing coincidence. But I think we've had enough time to get to know each other, and we spent more time in the studio after doing the covers record, too, that with dealing with demons, we kind of... We found our pocket, you know? And it's... (laughs) We just we started vibing off each other, you know, one example is there's, there's one song, you know, for the most part if I wrote a song, I would do the solo on it, and if Neil wrote the song, he would do the solo on it, but there was one song where I just knew that Neil's, he was either going to influence me to write something or I was just going to have him write it, and I just ended up having him write it, and I think he pretty much wrote the whole solo on one take, and then changed it little bits here and there in, in the final version in the studio, but you can hear a lot of different inspiration you know that I didn't even know was there you know I can't really cite a specific place or band or anything like that that heavily influenced this record because I haven't really been listening to anything a lot different that I didn't listen to ten years ago but I've gone back and listened to some of the stuff I wrote and been like, oh wow, you know that that sounds like Sisters of Mercy or you know and it sounds like bands that are not metal and you know it's too wide of a range to really narrow down to any one thing and i think a lot of it happens on a subconscious level you know this is one of those things again where it's like where do you get your inspiration i don't know it it it, it comes from somewhere but it's it's a mix of things and i think that's what you know Every musician is, is they have all their influences and it's like a recipe with all these different ingredients, which is all your other, everything that you've listened to up to that point. And for some reason it gets mixed together in your brain and then it comes out in your own form of music. That's a really good way to put it. It's
1: almost like you create a language from all of the music that you've experienced.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: a new music. Yeah.
3: That's pretty Thank you. <laughs> and what about you, Neil? Where do you draw your inspiration from? From this, from the last record. So I think Mike touched on a point that I maybe hadn't thought of, but a, a lot of it was surely uh, me write. I always try to write for for myself first. I want to if I think it's cool. If I didn't think it was cool, I wouldn't show it to anybody. I mean, I would just trash it, you know. So it starts there. But then a lot of times I would think about like I know Mike and Austin musically so well. I know what they would like, what they wouldn't like. So I'll throw these parts in, like I'll play, I'll be goofing around and be like, oh yeah, that's something that Michael really like." Let's work on that, you know, and then I'll let's being the editorial us. I, it's just me here. And <laughs> I'll just work out a riff because I think Michael like it. I did that a couple of times. The other one, just I I read a whole lot. And so I just, whatever, um, you know, feelings or notions, the books I'm reading at the time, kind of, they it naturally flows into a guitar for me for some reason. So go through that and it it, in the long run one thing
0: that neil and i did too is we with the old lineup we would give working titles to the songs that were silly and um when i did trust no one i started giving working titles to the songs that would help inspire dez in one one way or another and a lot of the titles that neil came out the working titles for dealing with demons des actually ended up using and like my night sky off trust no one was a title that i came up with and des ended up going rolling with it and that's actually something i would suggest to a lot of bands out there is don't give like you know stupid nonsense working titles to songs like if you're working separately from your singer, the you know, way we do, because a lot of times we, you know, for the most part, we work on songs together and then we hand it off to Dez, and you know, he might make some suggestions here and there, but then he just starts writing on his own. And I think giving in a song a proper title, even if it's just gonna be a working title and it's not gonna be a final title, can really help the person that's next in line. Or even the person like when Neil names a song and I listen to it, you know, I'm going to read the title of whatever he ends up calling it. And, you know, I could tell he put some thought into it and try to be creative, even just with a working title. And I think that with Des anyway, I think that makes a big difference.
1: I think that that helps a lot of vocalists because, um, I don't know how it is for you guys just to extend on that question on how you write riffs. And you already spoke about this, Neil, with books and how that will subliminally get into your writing. Do you find that you guys write to situations or maybe even a word or something that's pissed you off, something that's made you happy? Have you noticed that you write in those situations
3: and it sort of influences how you feel about a certain riff, almost like a catharsis? Totally can for me, yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I was talking about. It's any, any little feeling or something that like, you know, particularly impactful from a passage somewhere that I read that that'll, that'll spur me on for sure. And how about you, Mike? I don't
0: read nearly as much as Neil to get slightly a little bit more personal than I usually would is after I had my seizure, I was, um, on anti seizure medicine. You know, I still am. Um, because I drive a car and I surf, and you know I don't want to have a seizure and drown, or you know get into a car accident. And up until recently, I was on something that was making me not the happiest person on earth, and um, that influenced my writing a lot. Like if you go back and listen to a couple songs on, even on dealing with demons, like there's some super like. Keep uh, keep away from me is one of them. Like, that's just for me, that's a really, really dark, somber song. And it represents how I felt back then. You know, luckily I had a point where I hit rock bottom with that stuff. And I finally found a doctor that had his head out of his ass and was just like, whoa, 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 you're taking what? And I'm a much happier human being right now. But I was on that stuff for a a solid 10 years, you know, and for better or for worse, you know, that influenced my writing a lot because, you know, I I was, I was pretty miserable most of the time off and on. And to tell you the truth at the time, I didn't even really know it. But, and then another thing that started influencing me that actually sounds kind of ridiculous is Neil told me one time that he'll watch movies while he writes. On his laptop.
1: That's interesting. So, when you're watching those movies, are they on silent or do you have the music and everything going? It's on low for me.
0: Yeah, it's on low. And it's usually something that I've seen many, many times. And I kind of found that, like, if I get into a rut and I'm not coming up with anything, you know, basically have writer's block. It's like, all right, well, you know, I'll stick something on my laptop. I'll watch Netflix or I'll put on a documentary or just anything. And I'm sure that that, you know, once I start coming up with something that I really like, I'll put it on pause and then I'll concentrate on it. But it doesn't seem to hinder my writing whatsoever. It's actually kind of seems like it helps a little bit. And it it sounds very, it sounds ridiculous that I would do things that way. But sometimes I think if you concentrate too much on something you're going to end up screwing yourself in the long run, you know? And then a good thing, a good example is, is like, you know, I stopped taking Adderall over 10 years ago. And when I first started taking it in college, you know, I felt like it was the greatest thing ever. You know, it's like I would sit there and play guitar for 10, 12, 14 hours a day, whatever. But over time, like all drugs do, and it is a drug and it's, it started to turn on me, you know, it just wasn't working for me anymore. And then I finally was like, okay, and you know, I got to stop taking this stuff in order for me to write properly again. And I did. And it, it took a long time, you know, it's, uh, I was so used to writing that way when I decided to stop taking it, it was, I was scared. Like, am I still going to be able to write without Adderall? And It took some time and I started drinking an overabundance of coffee to try to compensate. But I would say, you know, after about six months and just like, okay, you know, talking to myself like, all right, you got to sit down. You can't take that shit anymore. Even if you do, it's not going to help you whatsoever. And to tell you the truth, I hardly ever get writer's block anymore. And looking back, I was just like. You know, just like a lot of people, you know, start to realize over time that uh, drugs can really, you know, fuck with everything in the long run, you know, and I wasn't taking a lot of it. I was, you know, it was I was taking a very mild amount, but still, it was it was no good for writing. Maybe it was all in the head that you thought you needed it when you actually didn't. You're probably right. Yeah. And but one other thing is, is like, I've always been, you know, like, I don't read a lot of books. I was always the kid in school that didn't want to sit still. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to do something. I wanted to be playing my guitar. And I think in the long run, I think it definitely did something to my brain where I can really focus in on something and I don't need anything anymore. So maybe in the long run it helped, or I just got older and my body chemistry changed. My brain chemistry changed. And I've just learned how to focus in on something and not have to, you know, get up every half hour and or have my mind wander and do something else. But, uh, you know, the moral of the story is, is like, you know, even if they're prescription drugs and they're prescribed to you, I just don't believe in them anymore. I think it's uh, I think it's going to hurt you in the long run. Amazing. I agree.
1: Totally agree. I stopped smoking weed for the exact same reason. Yeah. I just found that it wasn't helping anymore. So anyway, gentlemen, I'm going to end it there. I don't want to take up any more of your time. I want to say thank you very much for spending the time to talk to subscribers here at Riffard and uh, our listeners at the podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks for having us. Hey, no, anytime. Thank you for giving us such good insight into what you guys do. Been a pleasure. Well, they're a bunch of cool cats, aren't they?
2: Oh, yeah, they're very cool. One of the things I'm enjoying about doing this podcast is... uh Talking to a bunch of people that either you or me have known for a really long time.
3: Yeah.
1: And just it's like the catch up period. So it's like we could probably chat for even longer than we are.
2: It's actually pretty rare. I find that we bring someone on that both me and you have never talked to before.
1: Or we've spoken to them, but never never face to face. Like with Adam, who we did on the podcast a few days ago. Like I've spoken to him numerous times over the years but never actually had a conversation with him on the phone or face-to-face. Yeah. But I'm pretty certain that most guitar players we bring on here, we at least one of us has spoken to at some point in the past.
2: Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's it's cool to catch up with people. Man, I've, like with Mike, I've known that guy for a really, really long time. And it's, it's just cool to see how long he's stuck in the game. And I think that, it's a good, it's a good example for people to look at because I mean, he's a good guitar player, but he's not like some crazy ass shredder or anything like that. He's just a good guitar player and he's solid as fuck and has maintained a career in a pretty well-sized band for, you know, well over 15 years now Yeah, just by being solid and a cool dude.
1: And yeah, I mean, I, I even taught while I was a tech on an earlier tour with him, that was 11 years ago and they were still big then. And yeah, he was a solid guitar player, really solid actually.
2: Yeah. And I think that a lot of people forget that that in lots of ways is a lot more important than, uh, than being super flashy. I mean, you know, if you can become a virtuoso or whatever, cool obviously, cool, but if that's not you, that doesn't mean that you don't have a shot at this. Like there, you can be just a solid guitar player who's talented, who who has skills, who has good stuff to offer um, and make it happen and be in a real band and be a guitar player for a living. It's a doable thing.
1: I think the most important thing that people forget about is just writing solid songs. And being able to play those songs the best that you can. That's literally what it is, isn't it? Like being able to, you know, do all the flashy stuff is cool and stuff, but it doesn't write a good song.
2: No, I was going to say, I guess if the flashy stuff is part of what your music is, like say an spire or something, then yeah, obviously.
1: It's, it's funny that I don't see it as flashy in that context, because the way that it's been done has been written into a really good song. Yes, true. And... The same can be you know, said with like stuff like Animals as Leaders. The technique is supremely complicated. But the way that it's used, it's always as part of a song that sounds good. So it's all about the intent, I think, in that particular instance. If you're learning this technique to write something really cool, then fair enough. But if you're just writing it just to be able to do it, then that's completely different.
2: I guess you're right. Flashy is not the right word, but... In the wrong hands, those techniques could come off as flashy.
1: That's actually very true. I guess when Eddie Van Halen first started turning around while he was tapping, that probably came across as flashy, even though it sounded sick.
2: (laughs) Well, it was flashy. (laughs) But that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I think it's more about it being appropriate for the music. Yep, that's exactly what it is. What you do has got to be appropriate for the music. And that kind of stuff's not appropriate for all styles of music. Or all genres of music, not even all genres within heavy music, which is associated with flashy playing. Like you don't have to be that. If That's not you. That's okay. What is important though, is even if it's not you to be that crazy lead guitar player, being solid, now that is important.
1: Really important. The most important of anything. Like, um, as we say, you know, even stuff like Oasis, you know, something as simple as uh, as that. It still needs to be played well. And if you can't play it well, well, you're probably not going to have uh, a solid gig. <laughs> and yeah, solid guitar playing is the most important fundamental f- for being in any live band, in my opinion.
2: I think there's a big difference between simple and easy. And uh, playing simple things solidly is not necessarily easy.
1: Oh, definitely not, no.
2: In some ways, it's harder.
1: The space as well, like when it's like you're not playing very much, it's definitely harder.
2: Yeah, there's just more space for you to think about what you're going to fuck up.
1: <laughs> exactly, or if you're going to hit it on time for this one note. And I think we spoke about this, didn't we, with um with Malcolm um in ACDC and that no one's ever played that riff exactly the same.
3: Yeah,
2: it's true. And I was thinking, I think it was Kiko who was talking about an arpeggiated clean part in a song. Ah, uh, yeah, that was it. And how that's one of the hardest things he has to do in Megadeth because it's just him by himself playing it. And I was thinking that that to me is some, like when I'm thinking back to stuff that was the most nerve wracking, it would be parts like that, where I'm playing something clean an arpeggiated, like an arpeggiated chord where it's like moving slowly and uh, you can hear every note clearly that's been scarier than like fast solos for some reason.
1: It's because you don't have the blanket, the cushion of knowing that the drums are there or the vocals are there or the bass is there to cover up any mistake. Yeah. Cuz the same thing happens to me. There's one particular bit in the Monument set and it's um it's in mirror image and it drops down to just me playing guitar, clean guitar with delay. And I know that if I mess up one note of it, the delay trail <laughs> alone is just going to make every other part of that break sound horrible.
2: You yeah. ever fucked it up live? Once. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not so bad though. Just once. I mean, I've I've probably
1: fucked it up more than that, but once was bad. Like you know, really bad. Yeah, it's quite it's quite nerve wracking. I think it's it, it's more nerve-wracking being on clean but then you get players like Mike Dawes that play by himself and he just has no problem with it so I think it's just a case of getting used to it
2: balls of steel yeah he's got balls of steel for sure definitely balls of steel anyways man I'm glad we got to talk to Mike and Neil they're awesome dudes and uh, it's been a pleasure as always
1: pleasure as always great dudes thanks for chatting to us guys and um, yeah I'll see you next week man
3: thanks for listening to the Revoir podcast